0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show
0: at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
2: Good Tuesday morning. It is Tuesday, May 9th. It's also Teacher Appreciation, or I'm sorry, National Teacher Day. But I guess you can... Choose to celebrate it by appreciating teachers in your lives, whether it be teachers that you've grown up with and have had, or teachers that are currently teaching your children. National Teacher Day. I've had some great teachers throughout my life, and I'm sure you have too. So uh, just take a minute today and show some, show some appreciation for a teacher in your life. Uh, we are also, once again, Dr. Matlis. He's out sick, but we will soldier on, and we've got a great show ahead of us. We're going to be speaking about companies and politics. Should they throw their hat in the ring, or should they remain neutral, and whether or not that could hurt them? Very interesting topic coming up. We're also going to be speaking about our talents and how we can develop them and how we can use them to... Enrich our lives and and take our lives in directions we may not have considered before. We'll also be speaking with our health evangelist, Doctor Ron Hager, here at uh, BYU or BYU. I always say BYU University, a little redundant, but he'll be here uh, shedding some more wisdom on the topic of hypertension. And as Cole Wissinger informed me, it is actually Hypertension Awareness Week or Month. Looks like month. a whole month. Mm-hmm. Wow, Terry, do you need a whole month to uh, appreciate hypertension? No, I got oh, it. Not appreciate. I, I don't. I should should say it's not hypertension appreciation month. That wouldn't be right. Anyway, you're good. You don't need a full month to appreciate or to no, okay. recognize that. We should be okay. <laughs> okay, good. And then, of course, we'll be speaking with Spencer and Jerem, who are probably. Well, they may not be too disappointed or surprised that the Jazz, the Utah Jazz, were swept out of the playoffs, and last night's game was kind of an ouchie. Ooh, well, I don't want to depress you. I'll uh, leave that for somebody else on the show, maybe Spencer and Jerem. Anyway, all that fun coming up here on the Matt Townsend Show, but first... Let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry,
3: what's up? A 23-year-old has been arrested in connection to a series of murders that terrorized the Phoenix, Arizona area over a year. Aaron Sosito was arrested Monday on 26 felony counts in connection with 12 incidents from August 2015 to uh, July 2016, during which a person in a car opened fire on random Phoenix pedestrians, killing nine people and injuring more. Sadeo had already been arrested on April 19th in connection with his uh, mother's boyfriend murder in 2015 and held on bond. The boyfriend is only his only victim alleged to have had any connection with Sadeo. Police have yet to identify any motives for the killing, which took place in poor neighborhoods in western Phoenix. This terrorized that neighborhood, that whole city for a while. He just started randomly driving around shooting. That's horrible. Um, former pre- President Bill Clinton and author James Patterson are writing a novel together. No. You, ever, you ever read a James Patterson novel?
2: No, but I see him everywhere. Well. And I always wonder what it would be like to I, read one.
3: I read a story that said something he has like four novels in the process at all times. That's crazy. That's just how he works for some reason. Yeah. Uh, so James Patterson, Bill Clinton writing a novel together. Uh, the book it's going to be called The President is Missing be released in June of 2018. Is
2: this a children's story? The Uh, president is missing? No. Clinton
3: and Patterson have been friends since they met on a golf course, of course, a decade ago. The book idea originated with their lawyer, Bob Barnett, who went, hey, I know two guys. They could get them together and write a book. (laughs) So working on a book about a sitting president drawing on what I know about the job, life in the White House, and, and the way Washington works has been a lot of fun, Clinton said. Patterson said, it's been the highlight of my career to work with Clinton, having access to his firsthand experience has uniquely informed the writing of this novel. Patterson is the author of, like, Along Came a Spider, and there's an Alex oh, Cross yeah. series. Well, good for them. So, yeah, there's a book. It'll come out next year. Uh, this one is I found interesting, A Conspiracy.
2: Ooh, I love them.
3: Bumblebee Foods. You ever heard oh, of yeah. Bumblebee Foods? Oh, yeah, tuna. Tuna. major U.S. tuna fishing company pled guilty on Monday to conspiracy to fix prices for canned tuna. Bumblebee pled guilty to one felony charge, agreed to pay $25 million uh, in a cr- with a criminal fine for its role in a price-fixing conspiracy conducted with other unnamed tuna companies. Uh-oh. The companies colluded to fix canned tuna prices beginning in early 2011 until at least 2013. The Department of Justice said it was still conducting a probe into the tuna conspiracy. So, wait,
2: I'm confused. They yeah. were hiking the tuna prices? No, or?
3: they were colluding so that they all sold the, sold it at the same price.
2: Oh, right? they are so fixing all, the price. So they all
3: make the same amount of money, and no one's trying to undercut somebody else. But, I mean, isn't a can of tuna like 50 cents? At the, I mean,
2: Yeah, what's the big deal? I, I'm, like, eh, I'm okay. okay if it's 50 cents across the board.
3: I've never seen a can of tuna. I mean, a, a can of tuna was like five bucks. You know, that's Ooh, when yeah. you're like, wait a second, but...
2: But then you'd have to walk past the tuna at the grocery store to know that, which we never do.
3: Eh, I usually buy it by the case. so I mean, if you have it, you have it. Um, and this came, this is a story from uh, the Flathead County, Montana police blotter. What? Police blotter, a report of the daily activity that the police conduct and when they go out. and They do like little one line descriptions of calls they get.
2: So it's almost like a blotter blogger. Yeah. Okay.
3: They're, they're kind of funny. This one, it's a whole day's worth of stuff. So it's 6.51 a.m. This is on May 3rd, around that time, mm-hmm. right? 6.51 a.m., a man reported that someone had just spent the last few hours trying to break into his house. The undeterred burglar found, uh, finally got into the house and was now making a scene. The reporting party wanted law enforcement to remove the man. Hmm. So someone spent the last couple of hours trying to break into the guy's house. As as it, you know, I mean
2: and the police haven't shown up, yeah, so or he the, hasn't yeah. called the police.
3: So, n- then he calls and he goes, okay. "He's in the house now. I, he's making a scene. I want you to remove him." That's very cool. <laughs> At nine thirty-eight a.m., a man found some weird-looking mushrooms. At eleven sixteen a.m., a local man called police because one of his drug-crazed neighbors stole his chainsaw. At two forty-five p.m., some rowdy kids drove their '80s beater car through a fence. <laughs> At 4:15 p.m., a Columbia Falls man this is Montana reported that his neighbor's dog is a jerk. <laughs> At 5:08 p.m., some books were found in a gully. Oh no. Just books. No other oh. information. It just says some books found in a go. hate that. And at 6.15 p.m., a woman called police because she believed she has been the victim of fraud. A few days earlier, a man claimed to be a police officer called her and informed her that she owed the IRS more than or $1,400 in taxes, right? So then it says, the man said that the best way for her to pay the IRS was to buy a bunch of iTunes gift cards and then call him back with all the numbers on the back of each car. Oh, no. The woman did what the man said, but after giving some more thought, she decided decided it was pretty weird request for the police to make, so she called the police to check. Oh,
2: no. Uh, What's an IRS agent going to do with a bunch of iTunes gift
3: cards? Buy some games, download some music, a couple movies.
2: Man, that is just so depressing. But, I mean, a list, that was a – oh, man.
3: Some of the dog was a jerk. Books found in a gully. I mean, that's a, a full day for the police.
2: If somebody's breaking down my door, even if it takes them two and a half, three hours, I'm probably going to call the cops, like, at minute one. You're not just curious to see if they're going to succeed or not? No.
3: But how much of a threat is it if he's doing it over several? I mean, how do they phrase it? It said that he he had just spent the last few hours trying to break into his house. At some point, I mean, he's failing over and over again. You just kind of, okay, go away, dude. Stop messing with my house.
2: If I'm not going to call the cops... If I have two and a half hours to kill, I'm yeah. at least going to set up some, like, Kevin McAllister Home Alone-type obstacles oh, right. for him to try to yeah, get through once he does get in. You know, like the Christmas tree ornaments on the floor, the paint cans, the uh, glue on the cellophane, and then blow some feathers at him. I think
3: the most useful one there was the paint cans. Oh, yeah. Except I think you'd see a coming and Duck, but...
2: But getting hit in the head with a paint can is going to end your night real quick. We are talking about a burglar that it takes two hours to get into the house. You're right, you're right. Might not be be the most observant. It could be
3: very effective. Hmm.
2: Yeah. Mm. Well, sometimes uh, it just takes longer. You just can't break into a home as quickly as you used to be able to. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make burglars like they used to. That's true. Anyway, Terry, anything else that we should
3: be worried about, or uh, so any more burglar news? I found this story. Found it kind of interesting. It says, ask people about memorable things or events that happened during their lives, and their recollections tend to be from between the ages of fifteen and twenty-five. Interesting. It doesn't matter if it's current affairs, sports, or public events. It can be Oscar winners, hit records, books, personal memories. We uh, these uh, researchers in science. And memory called this uh, a reminiscence bump. It references to the shape it gives when we plot a curve in memories over a person's lifespan. So it's one of those rare effects in cognitive psychology that's not contested. We have given up researching whether it exists and uh, began asking why. Neurobiological accounts propose that there is something about the brain maturing that leads to information we encounter in this period between the ages of 15 and 25 being particularly well-encoded. It's what we remember when you think of the good times. That's a good point.
2: I try to, you know, because when I try to think of anything before age 15, all I can remember is the stuff that traumatized me or worried me right. or I was injured in some way. Interesting.
3: Well, I, I, I can agree with that. I read this. I start looking back, like, what are some of the... Events in my life that I, I – you know, the things that I do now, why do I do them now? Why am I interested in things now? Why do things entertain me now? And it, you can kind of track it back to that time period.
2: Those are kind of the formative years. Hmm.
3: And things – I think they also have um, – it might be the time that you first experience something. True. And so you have that, that freshness. It's not something you've done over and over. And so you remember that emotion that's involved with the activity.
2: Maybe because it's right around the age when you can get a job and you start being able to pay for those types of things. Right.
3: There's some freedom there and you start having some uh, of your own experiences maybe away from your parents, away from that sort of influence, and it's kind of your own personal thing. Yeah. So Some researchers propose that we are better at recalling first-time experiences like a first kiss, first driving lesson, and so on, most of which tend to happen at that age. Others suggest that the reminiscence, reminiscence, i can't say that. Reminiscence bump is part of a culturally defined period in our lives in which key experiences occur and are then shared and discussed. Our own research has suggested some differences that arise because this is the period when we lay down memories and store information that will define who we are for the rest of our lives. So, as you said, the formidable years. Yeah. Uh, and and so you're you're creating what you are, what yourself is, what that is in your mind. Mm-hmm. And as you create that, those memories are more lasting for you. Um, we set out the t- – and then they go on and there's a test to see if this is correct or not as they go through. But um, I don't know. Because you start – you start, you, you look back and you have these, these memories and you, you create them at this moment that it creates who you are. And later in life, you have big life events and I can't remember some of them. Yeah, you know it's like you, you just sort of blow right through them, and it's on back to you know I, uh, big life event the two kids right right you've had, you have two kids I've correct? got two kids yeah and and those are big memories and mm-hmm. we were looking at photos last night and I go that happened when did that happen you start oh yeah I guess that did happen and it was just the whole time period that that happened I just sort of had the kid back to work in a week you know yeah. just moving on. And it doesn't – it just seemed like those memories weren't as cemented as some other ones.
2: It's got to be different for women though because my wife seems well, to remember yeah. so much more than I do, especially in terms of our kids. And uh, I, it's starting to affect me. I've act- actually started taking notes on my phone like, oh, here's here's a good memory that I have or here's a memory that we created today that I should probably remember right. or that maybe not as like, – Life-shattering or altering, but it's a nice memory nonetheless. So that's a good reminder. Fifteen to twenty-five, you say? That's what it says. I got eight more months to come up with All significant right. memories. There you go. Get working, Cole. <laughs>
3: cement in your mind. Get
2: to work. <laughs> All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with a guest, uh, PhD Daniel Cawthon, who's going to be talking to us about corporations and politics. Should they remain neutral, or should they throw their hat in the ring? Interesting topic. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. You know, companies have always participated in the politics of our country. They get their hand in everything – Even so, people also expect companies to stand by the core values they say they live by. So what happens when a company decides to not take a political stance on a certain issue? Well, here to speak with us today is Ph.D. Daniel Korshin, uh, who is an associate professor of marketing at Drexel University's Lebeau College of Business, who studies companies and their political stances and how it affects them. Good morning uh, and welcome to the show, Daniel. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. I am so excited to talk to you about this. This is just so fascinating. I want to. I, I know that uh, you conducted some studies, but uh, first of all, let me let me hear a little bit more about how you became interested in this topic and uh, what has surprised you so far.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, I think I was first drawn in. Uh, many of your listeners will remember when uh, Chick Fil A's CEO inadvertently made a comment uh, that he was a, against gay marriage. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And, uh, and after he made that comment, he he didn't intend to, it to be something representative of the company, but I think many people just uh, since he was the uh, the CEO and and the, the founding family, uh, they talk they took it that way, and immediately there were. Uh, lines up outside the stores. There were lines in favor of his statements and uh, people who wanted to support the company in that stand. And there were uh, there was a line, you know, right on the other side of the door, uh, trying to boycott the place and uh, prevent people from buying. So that that um, that was one of the real uh, the first strong reactions that I saw, and um, and it really drew me in to see what was what was going on. And is this something that could end up happening more? Um one of the uh the you know the big we've seen the comp- the country is becoming more polarized uh, people are uh, politically, and uh, so and people are increasingly looking at the world through this political lens. They're drawing it into everything. And uh, what what a, a number of other researchers have found over the years is that this really is something that's uh, it's been picking up steam. That people are seeing their purchases more and more as a way to express their political values.
2: That's so fascinating, too. And it's interesting because I think. I think most people would think that uh, if you're a company, you wouldn't want to take a stance on these really big issues for fear that you're going to polarize a lot of your your consumers and, and lose business over it. But your study that, that you've conducted maybe suggests that that's
1: not the case. Yes, um, but the caveat is that it depends on the company. So um, you're absolutely right that the knee-jerk reaction, I think, of just about every executive out there is... Let's let's stay away from politics. We don't want to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole because it's going to drive people crazy, and who knows how people <laughs> will react. Uh, but what, what we're finding in our research is that um, it's, that's, for some companies, it's not always the case, and it depends on the expectations that the company has already set. Uh, so uh, there, there are two types of companies that we, that we study. We kind of categorize companies as either a, a more traditional type that uh, we call result-oriented, and that's the kind of company that says we chase performance, we adapt to the market. We're, basically, we're just uh, we're, we, whatever the market tells us to do, we're going kind to of move in that direction. And then there's another group of companies that in the last 10 or 15 years has been gaining prominence, and these are companies that say we act on our values. Uh, we're guided by core beliefs, and uh, and though and even if it might give us a little bit of trouble in terms of performance, uh, we you know we, we have we have to act based on those principles, and those are the companies that set up expectations. Uh, and when a political uh, issue comes along and they're confronted with it, people expect them to act.
2: Now, do you think uh, consumers see the values-based uh, company? As a company that maybe has more of a backbone, or do, would they rather that the companies leave their politics out of the transaction?
1: Yeah, most people that uh, I speak to, and we've um, we've been conducting qualitative research, more quantitative stuff uh, in the lab, in the field, um, the general, you know, the people's first reaction is, uh, companies really should stay out of this. They're, they're, they go, but then, when they start talking about more, they say, "Well, wait a second. That company here's here's Patagonia. So Patagonia is a, gr- a great example. They've, um, you know, I mean, they've their entire uh, uh, their their reason for being almost um, the way that they state it is that they they want to protect the environment. Um, and uh, so they are. Uh, so then, when when the president makes signs an executive order or the uh, Environmental Protection Agency makes statements about uh, about future plans. Uh, the people expect they just expect uh, Patagonia to, to have a backbone on that issue. It's very issue kind of specific as well. Um, so they are they are expected, and if they don't act that way, then uh, many people will find it hypocritical. And that's that's a lot of this is coming down to the authenticity of the company as much as anything.
2: So, you know, obviously we know that that businesses can have an impact on politics. Has this always been the case? What's different between, you know, politics and companies decades ago versus uh, the role that they play today?
1: Yeah. The I here the way that I see it, I mean, the companies have been involved in in politics. There's no, I mean, companies have been lobbying for uh, for years and years. They've always had such a big impact on the way the government functions. Uh, so those ties have always been there. What, the difference between what we're seeing now in the past year or so uh, and, say, 20 years ago or even, <laughs> even five years ago, for that matter, is that companies are, are making these positions uh, public. They're, uh, they're, they're public statements where they're saying, this, this is how, as a company, we need to stand this way. Um, and that, that's a, it's a major difference because everything uh, used to be behind the scenes. Uh, Now, many there there are a lot of uh, a a lot of consumers, employees. Uh, The pushback that I usually get is is people say, "Well, you know, companies really should just be in it for profits," Uh, and this is this whole idea of getting involved in the political process is crazy. Um, I, I, you know, I have to acknowledge that as a, as you know, that's a, a one philosophy, one way to go. Um, I see it more as a, uh, as a transparency kind of an issue. Um, you know, so I ask when when I get that kind of pushback, the question I ask is, well, do you think it's better for this to just be behind the scenes? Uh, behind closed doors, where we can't see their influence, or do you think this is something that should be uh, more out in the open? Where if companies have strong beliefs about something, uh, we should know about it. I I am more on the side of uh, you know this this should be transparent.
2: Interesting. So, uh, Dr. Corson, tell us tell us how you conducted the survey and what it entailed, and and what you discovered.
1: Sure. We've done a, a number of studies. I'll, I'll tell you about one field study that I thought was fascinating because it looks at people's actual behavior right when they're in a store. Uh, what we did was we, um, we, had, we, we worked with a market research company um, that does mystery shopping. It's the kind of uh, surveys where, where people will be sent into a store, they're given a task, and then they'll rate the, the service quality of the, of the people in the store. Uh, we use this technology through this mobile platform and uh, so our respondents they arrived at a nationally known uh convenience pharmacy store uh when they were in the parking lot we gave them uh, a series of messages about a political stand of the company okay now these were um they were kind of based on on real stands uh but we altered them depending on the type uh, on on uh uh, just randomly, so some people were told that this was more of a values-based company that acts on their beliefs. Some people were told that this is company; it's the same company always, right? Is uh, is more that results-oriented uh, company that um, that adapts to the market, and then we told them about uh, an, an issue. Uh, this was on uh, um, uh, gun control, and on that on that issue, we said that either the company uh, did not take any stand, they abstained from it. Or they took a stand on one side of the issue, or they took a stand on the other side of the issue. Okay, so we covered kind of all the different possibilities of how the company, um, and we just randomly assigned these these in all different configurations. So we had every sort of different possibility. Then we sent the person into the store after they read this message. Uh, they we gave them a, a task uh, to do in the store, and then when they left the store, we asked them, did they purchase anything that they weren't planning on buying before? Okay. Uh, and we use that as, you know, how comfortable as a way of, of understanding, like how comfortable were they with their experience in the store, how much do they like the store, and and uh, and as a sort of a proxy for what how their reaction to the stand. What we found was that uh, depending on the type, on how we described the company, on those expectations, we had the complete opposite reaction to the stand. So for those result-oriented companies, right, the ones who say the the more traditional approach, we might call it. Uh, for those companies that say we adapt to the market, those companies, if they took a stand, no matter what it was, people did not like it. They purchased less. Okay? They, they were much less likely to purchase. If they abstained from the stand, then people were more relaxed about the company. They, they went in, they did their, their shopping, and they ended up purchasing more. OK. Wow. Uh, so that's the traditional that's the kind of traditional uh, What The other companies, when we when we set up those expectations that this is a company that acts on its beliefs, this is a company that that has these strong core core principles that guide them, if those companies um, uh, took a stand, no matter what the stand was, this is the part that was fascinating, even if the, cons- even if the consumer disagrees with the stand, right, they, um, they're still purchasing more in the store, uh, about 20, a little, uh, slightly under 25% of the time they're purchasing something. Okay? When that same company abstains from taking a stand on that issue, um, it drops from around 24% uh, to about 16%. Wow, Um, and uh, so we're finding. So what we're finding is that that depending on the company, we have completely opposite effect. The expectations are completely the opposite. Yeah, I mean the the strength of those kind of effects and the way that it reverses like that just blew us away, um, because it it really does go completely counter to the way that most executives think about this. They they think you know if somebody disagrees with us. It's over. You know, we're in, we're in big trouble. Uh, but what we're finding is that people are actually much more tolerant. Um, they're in, in one sense, they're more tolerant, right? They're saying uh, we, can, we, we can handle the a difference of opinion. Uh, but on the other hand, they're more demanding than we think, right? They're, they're yeah. saying, they're saying if, if, uh, if you say that you have strong core values, we're going to hold you to that. Um, we're not going to let you get away with saying, you know, you've got these core principles that are guiding you. And then when, you know, when the rubber meets the road, you run the other way.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that this is something that uh, is, this is an example that's brought up in my family frequently. You know, I have uh, some people in my family that will refuse to go to Carl's Jr. because of the, the content of their ads. And it's interesting because, you know, uh, I I have two kids, and uh, we live down the street from a Carl's Jr. And yeah, I, I may not appreciate the content of, of some of their ads, but uh, their restaurant has a play place, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's a really good play place, you know. And so I wonder how much how much uh, consumers are are just making these compromises, you know. Well, I don't appreciate the message that they're conveying but, uh, you know, they have a service or a product that I, that I really feel like I need. I wonder how much that is going on.
1: Yeah, I, you know, what, what we're finding, and I don't have direct evidence for this, but if I take, the, you know, the whole of what we're learning, um, what, what we're finding is that, that people are, are, they, they are fairly tolerant. Like in the way that, that you're, you're looking at it with Carl's Jr., you're, you're saying, well, maybe it's not exactly aligned with how I see the world, um, but if they're being upfront with me, on it um, if they're being honest about it and they have a good a good product uh... a good service that they're that they're offering then you know i can i can handle that i can uh, i can overcome that because i know where they're coming from um, if i feel like they're withholding something from me um, if i feel like they're trying to be manipulative um, then that's where, those are the times when it starts to transfer over and you say, well, maybe they're also being manipulative in the way that they're providing their service. Maybe, maybe they're not as, you know, they, it seems like that play place is designed for the, the benefit of my kids, uh, but, you know, maybe there's something else going on. Maybe they're really just doing it as a, you know, as a means to get me into the store to manipulate me in some other way. So those trust barriers get broken down when people feel that the company is withholding uh, that honest conversation.
2: Yeah. And, you know, as far as Carl's Jr. goes, it's interesting because now we're seeing ads that have addressed those concerns of so many consumers that their their content is just not family appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're, you're starting to see a shift in their advertising where, they're, you know, there was a this big, long commercial that they aired where the the CEO of the company comes in and he takes down all the, the pictures of the scantily clad women and he's like, mm-hmm. this, this is not how we're going to do it anymore. I wonder if they're just uh, kind of poking fun at the issue or if they're <laughs> truly taking a stance be in, in direct uh, response to their consumers' outrage. I wonder if they're really taking a stance and saying, you know what, we, we hear you and now we're going to do it this way.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's it's hard. I, I, I'm not as familiar with the with the case as I as I should be, so I can't speak directly to the Carls Jr. But um, but what I can say, is that, um, you know, consumers are struggling with this, and executives are struggling with this. You know, and um, and this a lot of this comes down to, a, a larger shift in the way that people are purchasing. Um, where, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Or, or more, people would buy products. They would buy it for the quality of that product, and they wouldn't really go beyond it. Uh, and what's really uh, changed so dramatically in the past few decades is that people are now asking, "Who is it that I'm buying this from?" You know, it's become much more important the values and and uh, where the where the company stands on social issues of all kinds. Um, and uh, And so this is it 's a tension I think that a lot of people have that people didn 't it it just didn 't cross people 's mind uh fifty years ago if i 'm going to buy a shovel or a washing machine or uh, or go to a <laughs> restaurant uh you know who what what those what the the people's uh what their social values were and who they were buying it from it was just, you would just make that that very simple um, calculation about the product and now it's become a lot more complicated as people say well now if i use that that shovel in my driveway let's say after a snowstorm uh... if my my neighbors are gonna see me using that what does it say about me as a person uh, and uh, and those kind of things have um, you know it's made being a consumer actually a lot more complicated than it, than it used to be.
2: Absolutely, and Daniel, we we really appreciate you kind of giving us a a peek behind the curtain. You know, these are questions that don't necessarily, like you said, come up in our minds as consumers. Let's do yeah. this, Daniel. Let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. And I was hoping that uh, we can get some more examples of, of companies that do take a stance and companies that don't and what, their, what the cost of their silence may be. We're speaking with Ph.D. Daniel Corson, who is giving us a peek behind the curtain, as we just said, and we'll continue this discussion when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Ph.D. Daniel Corshan, who is an associate professor of marketing at Drexel University's Lebeau College of Business. And his latest research examines employee and consumer reactions to companies that take controversial political stands. Daniel, welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Thanks. So uh,
2: before the break, we I brought up the example of Carl's Jr. And I'm just I'm curious to know, what examp what other uh, specific examples you have of companies that uh first have taken a stance yeah. and then also companies that have not taken a stance and how sure. how those stances have either hurt them or helped them
1: right right well um we can start i mean a year ago uh, when i was i, I had a, an article in uh, uh knowledge at wharton uh and in that article i was Really trying to convince people that this could happen right that this was a year ago, uh, and how things have changed since then last uh, you know from uh, trying to convince people that it was possible to um, to the the just onslaught of companies that jumped in during the election, and especially between the most active time was uh, nearing the, elec- the presidential election and um, until and just shortly after around in february when uh, right after the uh, immigration, um, executive order came right, out. Yeah. Um, and that, that was just a period of tremendous activity. Uh, and we had, you know, in, in tech, we had, uh, Grubhub, if you may recall, the CEO sent a company wide email that was, uh, blasting, uh, uh, Donald Trump. Um, he got a lot of, a lot of pushback for that. Um, cause that was seen as very heavy handed. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, there were uh, reactions also uh, more on the on the liberal side from uh, Amazon and uh, AT&T uh, on uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, on the uh, more on the conservative side, there was uh, Yinling, the beer uh, company that's very popular out out here in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, gave the Trump family a, a tour of the factory and said, "Our guys are with you." Um, uh, KFC uh, made some uh, nods to the. Uh, Blue Lives Matter. Um, we had uh, so so we have we've had a lot of activity on on both sides. Uh, so in hundred
2: days, there's been no shortage of issues that people could take a stance on.
1: Oh yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and every time something comes up, you know, it's uh, it, it people start looking to those to those companies and they're and they're saying what what is your stand? Right. Um, there's one I, I mentioned Patagonia before. Uh, Patagonia and REI, two companies that are in the same industry. Um, they 've both taken uh what you might say as is, is uh, pro environmental stands uh patagonia much more forceful in, in the way that it that it 's speaking saying you know we uh actively oppose some of the uh some of the proposals uh from the e p a and from the president uh r e i taking a, a more uh I, don't know how you describe it, but just not quite as forceful as the as the Patagonia stand, saying uh, you know we support the environment and we're working to address it, but we're not taking any sort of specific stand on one issue versus the other.
2: Yeah. Uh, any any examples of companies that you know we mentioned earlier, Carl's Jr., who maybe they started by taking one stance, but then because of public outcry. Or influence, they've decided. You know what? We're gonna we're gonna listen to our consumers, and we're gonna be we're gonna be willing to change our opinion based on what our consumers are saying. Are any examples of of that?
1: There's uh, you know, the the first example that jumps to mind is a very high profile one when the uh, the immigration executive order came out uh, in uh, late January and discussions into early February, uh, and the reactions from Uber and Lyft. Um, those those are jumping to mind because they they're two companies in the same industry, very similar products uh and they had very different approaches to it uh Lyft was very outspoken uh as a, a critic of that. Uh, of that uh, the so called Muslim ban uh, and uh, and Uber was a lot more it, it was very hard to say what what they were all about right they said they were it was important to them, but at the same time they were they were going to work with the administration, but it wasn 't really clear where they where they were they yeah. were kind of obfuscating at at the time uh, This is one issue that we put to uh, a panel that that I run uh, of uh, of scholars from around the world uh, and uh b y u there 's uh, Jeff Dotson is one of our are members of this panel um, he's in the the marketing department there and uh, and it's a panel of experts from uh, from eight countries uh thirty nine universities and periodically when a company takes a stand like this uh, we i, I poll this uh, this group of scholars uh about how the company is handling it or are they handling it in a in a good way or not and so we're not judging what the stand is you know this is not uh, so we're not trying to judge uh, whether about the legislation that they or, or the the executive order, for se, but we're just judging how that company is is reacting, uh, and we asked them for their grades uh, for uh, uh, Uber and Lyft uh, simultaneously, um, and their their reactions I think mirrored very closely that the, the reactions that we saw from consumers, uh, which was that um, that Uber was by going back and forth and trying to trying to avoid making any statements on this, they caused themselves a lot of trouble because it seemed like they were withholding. Uh, information. Um whereas Lyft was, you know, they said here we're putting our cards on the table, um and uh, and and this is it, you know. F- so uh Uber, you know, suffered partly from that. There were there were some other issues with uh, um a uh, a driver strike going on at, at the JFK airport. Uh but I think in addition to that, they're uh they're very um you know their uh, their their kind of cagey response to this um, hurt them a lot, and it was one of the reasons why the uh, the delete Uber movement started, and they lost hundreds of thousands of subscribers for a time. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah.
2: So that's that is I guess that's a, a good example of what the cost is of of remaining silent or neutral on a political uh, issue.
1: It can be yes yes and uh for them you know i the way that i, I see with uber is that they they've also you know they they also have uh most of their customers and employees are in areas that are much more liberal as well so there was that you know that that added layer uh of it as well but uh but they that that was part of the picture i think for them was that they uh, they were seen as as being uh, maybe not quite deceptive, but that they, they weren't really – they weren't laying their cards on the table the same way that Lyft was. And, uh, and in that moment, in those few weeks, Lyft was a very uh, – they gained a lot of subscribers, uh, and uh, Uber lost quite a bit until they were able to recover.
2: That's interesting that you use the word deception. Um, does, it, does it matter for a company which way – which side of the issue they take? Or do consumers just want to see yeah. that they're taking a stance one way or the other?
1: Yeah, the um, the best case scenario is you know that the the company is taking a stance similar to the to the consumer. I mean, I think that uh, that that would be the best. But consumers are very they're quite tolerant if they feel that the company is is being honest. And I think Chick Fil A is a great example of a company that um, that does that. They have people recognize that they have strong values as a company. Uh, and they're willing to support. And not everybody that shops there agrees with all of the views of the of the CEO of the company. Uh, but people, uh, you know, but many people say they, you know, they have good quality food, uh, and they have strong values. We respect that that they have those strong values
2: their shakes are too good to not buy <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's
1: right that's right and uh, so so even you know in places like um uh, you know like Philadelphia which is a much more uh a, a much more left-leaning uh population here especially in the in the city of Philadelphia uh the Chick-fil-A stores are still you know i mean there are some people who who may have uh reactions to the, to the store but um but for the most part you know people are telling they say this is a company that, that they're being forthcoming
2: So just one last question as we wrap up the interview here. And thanks again for kind of giving us a peek behind this curtain that we mentioned. You know, as consumers, we don't – these aren't necessarily questions that are at the forefront of our minds when we're making these purchases. Um, So you mentioned Uber and you mentioned Chick-fil-A. And obviously some of these companies have had uh, some impact based on the stance or lack of stance that they've taken are these consumer reactions are they do they have a lasting impact or or do they change
1: yeah they they're able to change and companies uh you know the, so uber is a good example of a company that has uh, they've recovered somewhat i mean those those doubts I think are always going to linger a little bit in people's minds uh, but uh, but they've for the most part uh, gotten through the worst of the storm and they've uh, and they've re- recovered a bit um, so we we're, we're you know this is um it becomes part of the of a longer story and the associations that people have with that company of whether this is a company that's being honest with me um and it's something that um you know it can in when companies handle it poorly and they're seen as being deceptive then it chips away at the trust with with consumers, um, so I, I don't see it as a. It's not something that if you make the wrong move, it's going to take down the company, uh, or it's or if you make a, a, a good move, it's going to you know lift you to the highest heights. But it, it's something that uh, contributes to the larger picture of the way people understand the company. It, it's, contrib- it, it's another window for consumers into who is running the company and what does that company stand for. <laughs>
2: Well, Daniel, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. And uh, his name is Daniel Corson, and he is a Ph.D. associate professor of marketing at Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business. And he's been talking to us about the cost of remaining silence, uh, company silence on political stances. We really appreciate his insight on this topic. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun and the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back welcome back to the Matt Townsend show we just finished speaking with uh, Daniel uh, Korshin who talked to us a little bit about some of the choices we make as consumers and uh, you know they're sometimes based on A stance, a political stance that a company will make or not make. Really interesting topic. And uh, Terry South now wants to talk to us about some of the choices that we make when it comes to brushing our teeth and our dental hygiene.
3: Yeah. So how efficient do you think? You always hear you got to brush your teeth. You need to Mm -hmm. floss your teeth. That's the way you avoid cavities. Yes. I tell my child. He gets mad. He doesn't want to brush his teeth. And I say, fine, then I'll get the pliers. We'll just remove the teeth. Yeah. if not, that's pre-emptive, the Yeah,
2: preemptive do. strike. Yeah. Of
3: course, he gets mad. And that's really what I'm trying to yeah. do is provoke him to get mad. Mom <laughs> gets mad because it's late at night and everyone's mad. And I caused it all. I'm just having fun. But no, no. <laughs> that's kind of how it, a little glimpse inside yeah. my house. Uh, it says, daily brushing and flossing has become so ingrained in our society that for most adults, our oral hygiene routines have become second nature. But that means we don't think twice about whether we're actually caring for our teeth properly. In fact, if done incorrectly, brushing and flossing can have a detrimental effect on our health. So uh use this site uh, this this they talked to a professor of dentistry at the University of Washington. Oh, excuse <laughs> me, a professor of oral health at Wa- it's University a real of Washington. Thing. No absolutely. Okay. And I'm I'm just I just kind of a a dentist so, as a professor is kind yeah. of a His name's Felipe Hajul and and what he, he's saying is that um the fluoride in some toothpaste does strengthen your teeth, mm-hmm. right? But he says instead the best way to prevent cavities is to avoid as much as possible: sugar and other simple carbohydrates. Yeah, that's what rots your teeth, right? Yeah, brushing is going to help get stuff out of them, but what re- really stops the cavities is you need to don't eat your so diet. much sugar. Yeah. Says, however, he goes that doesn't necessarily mean you should stop brushing and flossing altogether. Both activities keep your teeth clean and strong. And mostly, ask you know, pleasing so people don't see that chunk of broccoli that you had yeah. for breakfast or lunch <laughs> or whatever. Breakfast at my house because we eat weird food for breakfast. Um, so what he's talking about, flossing, basically he says you probably don't – if you have restorative work, some dental fillings, that kind of thing, you may need to floss because things get stuck in there. Mm-hmm. And for most people, he says flossing trying to cause – when you do it, you need to try to cause the least amount of trauma to the areas between the teeth. Some people do it very aggressively. Mm-hmm. If you roll out and you're you know, bleeding gums when you're done flossing, you may want to you know, lighten up a little bit. He also says most people shouldn't have to floss unless something's stuck in your teeth.
2: Right. Interesting.
3: Right? So it's not necessarily – he goes flossing by itself doesn't actually prevent cavities. Mm. It's more of just there's something in your teeth.
2: Get it out. Right? So he's yeah.
3: kind of looking at flossing that way. Um, He emphasizes that before dental professionals recommended a particular oral hygiene routine, they should conduct proper long-term studies to ensure that their recommendations actually prevent dental issues as backed by solid science. So why wait for the research? What's current scientific consensus is the best way to floss. He says people who have the dental feelings restored to work, floss. If you have something in your teeth, floss. He was one should not let floss snap between the contact points of the teeth. In other words, don't yank the floss into position with such force that it snaps against your gums. If you do, you'll make them sore for a few days, mm-hmm. which happens to me because I apparently do it aggressively. <laughs> so, you know, back off. Don't do it so hard. When it comes to brushing, same thing. Don't do it so aggressively. My wife always gets mad because my toothbrush, the, all the bristles are just mashed. Yeah. Right? Because I, I just kind of grind away and I'm done. And she hers is like perfect for months on end and mine lasts like four weeks and I have to get a new one. <laughs> And uh, so take use fluoride cuz that'll strengthen your teeth but you know take it easy Apparently, yeah. we're very aggressive on our teeth and that causes a lot of the 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 gum gums receding and problems that you have.
2: Maybe that's just when people choose to vent their daily problems while they're brushing their teeth.
3: Maybe it is. Oh, that stinking boss told Maybe me. Maybe it to. is. What he says though he goes there is no proof that brushing and flossing prevents cavities. Really? Yeah. It's more the sugar and the carbohydrates. If you stay away from those, that prevents the cavities. Brushing and flossing is more for appearance sake and your own level of comfort if something's stuck in there. You know, fresh breath, that kind of stuff.
2: So don't eat the sugar to have healthier teeth and uh, brush your teeth so you'll be more pleasing to be around.
3: And if you are using fluoride, which has been proven effective in preventing cavities – Don't immediately rinse with water afterwards because then you're just washing it all away.
2: So I recently made a change in my brushing. So instead of rinsing my mouth out with water after I brush my teeth, I just spit out the toothpaste and don't rinse out with water. Yeah. That's what I've been told to do.
3: And if you don't like that, you probably need a a new toothpaste. If you you find that gross, get another flavor. The
2: aftertaste, yeah. Yeah. You got to watch out for that aftertaste. Well, Terry, thank you. That was interesting. Lay off your teeth. And it makes me want to eat less sugar now. That
3: never works with me. Yeah. like, yeah, fine.
2: It's a nice thing to say, but the execution is a little more difficult. Well, that's it for this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun as we continue to celebrate National Teacher Day as well as the day after Matt Townsend's birthday. We'll be right back.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show
0: at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Good Tuesday morning. It is uh, May 9th here on the Matt Townsend Show. And pretty much everywhere else, unless you're, you know, across the world. But that's okay. We're celebrating the day after Matt Townsend's birthday because uh, I I think we should just keep celebrating the days after his birthday since he wasn't here on his actual birthday, and he's not here again today. We're also celebrating uh, National Teacher Day. So think about a a teacher that's made an impact in your life or that's making an impact on uh, the lives of your children, and just reach out to them. Show them your appreciation. Although I think Teacher Appreciation Day is a different day. So think about them on National Teacher Day, and then when it's National Teacher Appreciation Day, that's when you can share your appreciation. Anyway, uh, we've talked on the program today about uh, some various crimes that people have committed that seem uh, progressively ridiculous. And we have some more stories to share with you because in a moment we'll be talking about a burglar that uh, broke into a home and started eating some food. We all get a little hungry, even when we're committing crimes, right? And uh, also another person that uh, used a cell phone to illuminate his path because his uh, headlight wasn't working. Interesting, fun stories coming up here in just a bit. We'll also be speaking with Elizabeth Crook, author of the new book uh, Life Lar- or Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next. So uh, if you've got some talents and you've reached a point in your life where you're you're looking for something else to to, uh, enrich your life, then she's going to help us figure out how to do that. First, though, let's head on over to Terry South, who's going to talk to us about what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up?
3: The White House is reportedly considering expanding a ban on carry-on electronic devices on flights. This is from CBS News. Laptops and other carry-on electronics are now banned on U.S.-bound flights from eight Middle Eastern and North African countries. The Department of Homeland Security is reportedly considering banning the program or expanding the program to flights from the U.S. to Europe. While government agencies have not confirmed the expansion, rumors department sources say that the expansion was likely. The Federal Communications Commission said Monday that its website was bombarded with denial-of-service attack after criticism from the regular, uh, regulator's plan to reverse net neutrality rules. The attack came a day after comedian John Oliver urged viewers on from his HBO show to submit electronic comment. Uh, opposing the regulator's plan setting up a website for the sole purpose of filing such comments. Shortly after the appeal, the FCC said in a statement that it was subject to multiple distributed denial-of-service attacks. These were deliberate attempts by external actors to bombard the FCC's comment system with high amount of traffic to uh, the commercial cloud host. The FCC said, adding that the attacks made it difficult for legitimate commenters to access the file, and filed their comments with the FCC. The chairman, Ajit Pai, said last month he would seek public comment on his plan to undo net neutrality rules, a move that would leave Internet service providers mostly free from FCC regulations. Now, last time they did this, was it three years ago? John Oliver on his show encouraged everyone to go to their website and do that, and they crashed the FCC website. (laughs) Um, He did it again Sunday night, and they said his show probably ended around eleven. Mm-hmm. PM, and so you end up by midnight. The FCC's website crashes. Wow. The FCC is saying it's this. They called it a denial of services attack, where they people focus all these computers and just blast a website with so many uh, requests to access the website that the website shuts down. Yeah, that's how that works. Huh. Well, and so they're saying it's it's that, not John Oliver. They're making a point to say it's not this comedian. He didn't he didn't shut down the website again. <laughs> like, come on. Does it matter? Yeah. Either way, there's some people that are interested. But uh, this denial of services attack is just uh, internet pranks, internet vandalism, basically. They're just messing yeah. up. They're, they're causing problems. Um, a 10-year-old Florida girl fought off an alligator attack by prying open the nine-foot-long beast's mouth and freeing her leg. The little girl and rescue personnel said on Monday, the girl, Juliana Osa, was swimming Saturday afternoon in about two feet of water. At a lake in Moss Park in uh, Orlando when the alligator bit her. But the 10 year old Florida girl fought off the alligator by prying open the nine foot long uh, alligator's mouth, freeing her leg. The little girl and uh, she. Uh Let's see here. What did she do? She was pulled ashore, rushed to the hospital when she was treated for lacerations and puncture wounds in the back of her left knee and lower thigh. She was back home Monday with her leg covered in bandages from hip to toe. Juliana said that she learned from a school field trip to Gatorland Theme Park in Orlando that if an alligator attacks, you should stick your fingers in its nostrils to help force open its mouth. That is so cool. Yeah. Do you remember anything you learned on a field trip? Um. No, not really. Yeah. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. So she remembered. I. Mean, I mean. I always thought you poked them in the eye, but maybe that's just sharks.
2: She tried. Yeah. She tried the nostrils. No, we have had stories of people poking
3: alligators in the eyes too yeah. and getting away. Maybe it's just generally. I think most animals, you poke them in the eye or maybe grab their nose and yank on it, they're going to have a reaction because it's yeah. kind of weird. Why are you grab my nose? So a trappers caught the alligator, euthanized it, but. Uh, Wow, nine foot long alligator in this. Good for her. That's awesome. Um, And finally, Oreos. Oh, I'm listening. New Oreos news. Mm -hmm. This is important stuff. So um, they have a new limited edition firework cookie. Hmm. The new Oreos in store May eighth. That was yesterday. They're in Mm -hmm. stores. I don't know which ones. You can figure out by yourself. Okay. Um, Because, you know, sometimes they're at Target. Sometimes they're at Walmart. Sometimes they're just limited edition. You can get them online or something. So they're they're around. It's a classic chocolate wafer, cream filling as always. But they take things up a notch with rainbow-colored specks in the frosting that are like Pop Rocks. Pop Rocks Oreos? Yeah. So the they're Pop Rocks Oreos, they're not Pop Rocks like the brand. Sure. Because they haven't, you know, they don't do the, the deals Same that Same effect way. though. But they have little chunks of candy that fizz and pop as pa- you eat the cookie. Can we have Palakiko go to
2: the store and, and get us a case of these Fireworks Again, Oreos? I don't know
3: how widespread these are. I don't know where okay. they're at. How do I, you know, sometimes you'll find them, sometimes you won't. It says like, as this says, uh, it's like a party in your molars. As you crunch through the cookie, there's a bit of heat involved and the feeling of sparkling bits uh, subtly exploding your mouth lasts long after you've uh, ate the cookie. They have this language. Um, The novelty product marks the start of Oreo's interest in innovating beyond their usual wacky flavor rollouts. This time they want to crowdsource their next big hit, offering up to $500,000 as a prize for a person who comes up with the best concept, which will be made into the next cookie. Wow, better than Fireworks Oreos? So you you can take your idea mm. and uh, submit it on Instagram or Twitter with the hashtag My Oreo Creation contest, I guess. In case you're uh, so inclined to contribute some flavors that they've noticed so far, raspberry danish. Mm. Um there's a whole bunch you go through and there's the people have taken either there's a template on a website somewhere or people are just really good with uh, with Photoshop or they take the Oreo cookie bat or you know container whatever it's in and then they 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 superimpose their own like flavor yeah. logo on it. Palakiko,
2: we need to get him on that too. And since he's a student, you know he'll get a fraction of that five hundred thousand. Right. Uh, you know, forty percent of that goes towards taxes, mm. and then we can split the the rest among. The show the gets a hit, us. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's working so, for us right now. I I came up with a flavor one time. I don't want to share it on the air because I don't want anybody to steal it, mm-hmm. but it was amazing. They were so good you could only eat about one or two of so them because like they're
3: f- – French vanilla?
2: No, there oh. was a pun involved. That's oh. all I'm going to say. Of course there's a pun.
3: Yeah. Always a pun. <laughs> <But> <laughs> would, yeah, you, so, would you try that? No. So no. as you go through and look online – And you see just an endless sea of different creations people are trying to come up with. Most are pretty gross. So you mentioned
2: dental hygiene in the last hour. And comedian Stephen Wright says that whenever he uh, has an attractive dental hygienist, Mm. he'll eat an entire case of Oreos before his appointment. (laughs) Just to make it longer? Yes. So I could imagine – that uh, the dentist appointment after eating some of those fireworks Oreos would be quite intense. My
3: dentist has you sort of fill out a form beforehand. Really? Occasionally. Like they have to update their records and it uh-huh. always asks, when's the last time you flossed? And so Ooh. I write right before I came in today because that's when I did.
2: Oh. That and then is they like... do
3: floss regularly. No, I don't. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that is, I, yeah. I always have to hang my head in shame whenever they ask that. Like, how often are you flossing? I feel like I got a question wrong on an exam.
3: Or I say, like, when I have something in my teeth, because that's when I do it. Right. So, oh, Whenever great. I eat
2: popcorn or yeah. corn on the cob. Yeah. That's how it works. <laughs> Other things, you know, I, I want the flavor to last. But that's getting a little too graphic and gross, so we'll move on from that. Um, speaking of eating, well, you know, if you were a burglar, hmm. would you, wouldn't you? would you just get in and out as quickly as
3: possible? You would think. Yeah. Some people like to dawdle. Like if to hang around.
2: Yeah. We've had people,
3: uh, like, they just go upstairs, take a nap. Some people, you know, just
2: spend two and a half hours trying to get in the house. There you go. A South Carolina man is charged with burglary after breaking into his neighbor's home Saturday because he was hungry, according to a county sheriff's office report. Uh, Joel Puglia, 55, told deputies when they arrived at the home that he did go into his neighbor's home because he was hungry and did not have anything to eat in his house. The report says, Puglia says he pushed on the on the locked door several times to get it open and uh, Joel reported that he made a pimento cheese sandwich mm. and took and consumed a pickle out of the pickle jar. Took the a report stated. Yeah. This was your college roommate that would eat your food <laughs> even when you labeled it clearly in the fridge. And completely deny that it was him. Mm-hmm. Deputy said Puglia entered the residence with the intent to commit a crime and charged him with burglary and uh, petty larceny. Wow.
3: I don't know. You'd think you'd want to get in, accomplish whatever you're there for, and get out. But people tend to hang We've had people go in and take showers. Kind of shave, yeah. just kind of get you know, freshen up.
2: If he was that hungry, why didn't he just knock on his neighbor's door and ask for the the pickle and pimento cheese sandwich?
3: Yeah, he just stumbled into
2: someone else's house and muddy buddies. Mm-hmm. Somebody had a fridge full of cold muddy buddies that might be tempting, hmm. but I would probably just knock on the door and ask.
3: But for that. I mean, if you're going to do that, you look, you take what you need, and get out. You know, just hang out and. But there's
2: no situation in which I would need to do that because our cupboard would always be stocked with rice checks, the key ingredient to making Muddy Buddies. There you go. Anyway, in other crimes... Hmm. Other crime news. (laughs) Cell phones have plenty of uses, but headlight isn't one of them. The Pasco County, Florida Sheriff's Office stopped a scooter Monday night because it didn't have a functioning headlight. According to a post on the Sheriff's Office Facebook page... The driver was trying to use a cell phone light as a headlight by bungee-cording the phone to a mirror. It didn't impress the uh, corporal who made the stop. Authorities didn't say if the driver was charged, but the driver was sent home walking without his scooter. That's just dangerous. Yeah. Why would you ever do that? Well, because you don't have a headlight. (laughs) Sounds like another student.
3: You just try to (laughs) No offense, Cole.
2: This is nothing that you would ever do.
3: Never. Yeah. Oh. See, I, see that I can understand that, right? Because the yeah. light on the phone is really small and all that. I was driving my my truck. This was probably like six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. and I got pulled over because my fog lamps were on, but mm-hmm. my headlights were not on. Because ah. when you when you pull the switch, there was like two clicks. Yes, the first click was the fog lamps. Second yes. click was both fog lamps and the headlights. Mm-hmm. And I just had it on the first click. It was dusk. Right. It wasn't dark. Yeah. And like people were sort of turning their lights on and not. it was just kind of in the middle at middle time. And this cop pulls me over because my headlights are off. Yeah. I'm looking around. I go, it's not even dark yet. And he goes, you got to have your headlights on.
2: So this is at what time? This was probably around 6 o'clock. See, because one of my pet peeves lately is, you know, I'm, I'm leaving to go to work around 6. And so it's, the light is starting to come out, but it's dark enough that you probably can't see a car behind you very well. So I've had cars, several cars lately that have not had their lights on. And right. I'll try to get as far away from that person as possible.
3: And I had my – but my fog lamps mm-hmm. were plenty bright. Yeah. They were like another set of headlights. Right, mm. but they weren't the actual headlights, see, so if, I got
2: a ticket. See now, if I'm you like, had, <laughs> if you had your fog lights and the iPhone light,
3: probably would have passed. Would have been fine. Just strap an iPhone <laughs> to the front of the truck. But uh, and the thing that was was great is I was talking to the guy. I'm like watching cars drive by with their headlights off, just completely. And I'm like, so. All these other people, you're going to grab them. That didn't. You don't point out to the cop that he's pulling you over oh for something. Yeah, you. I mean, like, what about all these other people? You're going to get them too. That doesn't help the Never situation works. at all. But I did it because I was not happy with that at all.
2: I tried to use that same reasoning in elementary school. Ah, I yes. was the I was the kid where if everybody in the classroom was talking, the teacher would signal me out and say, "Jeffrey, mm-hmm. stop talking." And it's like I'm looking around; everybody else is talking. And yet I'm the one that gets sing- singled out. Not fair.
3: When I was in sixth grade, my voice started to drop. Mm-hmm. So everyone else's voice is a sort of high pitched. Mine is a little lower. The teacher could hear me. Yeah. So whenever I, people are whispering all over. I whisper because it's lower. The teacher, for whatever reason, could hear that easier. Yeah. And I would always stop talking. I go, everyone's talking. Yeah. Never worked. Never worked.
2: I'm also the guy that when I sneeze, I never get a bless you. Never. Somebody else could sneeze immediately, right? you know, right after me. Everybody gives them a bless you. I don't know what it is. Bless <clears throat> you, Jeffrey. <gasps> Times, they are a-changin'. For the better. Cole, I appreciate that. Now I can put that complaint to rest. Anyway... We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Elizabeth Crook, who's going to tell us how we can utilize our talents and to be an achiever and to look for that next big thing in our lives when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is still out sick. You know, in today's world, people are constantly searching for improvement in their lives. In order to progress and continue to feel fulfilled, most of us hope to find new ways to change or seek out new hobbies. Well, Elizabeth B. Crook, a longtime corporate strategist, agrees and wanted to help give those people what they're searching for. In Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next, a new book that is actually out today, Elizabeth equips her readers with the valuable tools she's used for years to help high-achieving individuals find fulfillment by determining what's next in their lives. She joins us this morning to share more about her book and her strategies. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. And congratulations. I understand your new book is out today.
4: It is. It's all very exciting. That
2: is exciting. So
4: I feel like I'm living large. I'm entering a new chapter.
2: <laughs> well, good for you. That, that that is so inspiring. I have so much respect for people whenever they come out with a new book. And uh, I, I'm just curious to know what was what was kind of the brainchild for this book? Where where did the where are the roots of this idea coming from?
4: Well. As you mentioned, I've been a corporate strategist for over 20 years, but people would come to me, not from companies, but individuals saying, everyone says you're a great person to help folks figure out their career and what to do next. So it was something I did on the side, and then finally, over time, I developed a process that was very powerful, and a good friend and mentor of mine once said, will you just write the darn book? So I finally decided to write the darn book.
2: <laughs> oh, thank goodness for friends like that, right?
4: Right.
2: <laughs> so, uh the the title of the book is The Achiever's Guide. So, what is your definition of an achiever?
4: An achiever is someone who is already doing something that or has done something that is meaningful for them that feels like they've reached some level of competence or success or recognition, but they're now saying, gosh, I've been doing what I've been doing for 10 years or 15 years or sometimes 30 years, and they're saying, I have all these experiences, I have resources, I have skills and talents, and I want to be more intentional. I want to feel more satisfied, more connected to what I do, and I want my work and the rest of my life to fit together instead of seeing it as my work's over here and my life is over here.
2: Yeah. So what are some of those things in our lives that stop us from becoming an achiever?
4: Well, we all have limiting beliefs, every single person in this world. And uh, those limiting beliefs come about from our experiences. So we may see, uh, for example, there was a young man I worked with and his father he was a he was an inventor, and he had all kinds of in ideas for reforming his industry, but he was very much an introvert and never wanted to connect with people who were out there doing the deals and I said so let's talk about that. He said, "You know, my dad got totally screwed over by these people who were the kind of the in crowd, and I'm never going to let that happen to me so his vow that he would never connect with people who were very active and outgoing in business meant that he was never going to connect with someone who could actually help him in his business. Does that Mm,
2: make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So
1: uh, So
4: that's an example and sometimes the other thing is we all tend to go with what works for us and so if you become successful uh, or gotten recognition because you were always the independent one or you were always the organized one or you were always the leader We tend to get stuck in that in that way of being instead of saying, are there times when maybe I want to step back and let someone else lead? Are there times when I want to be more collaborative instead of always doing things on my own?
2: Yeah. So, you know, you've you've helped companies work better at progressing. um, And those principles that you used in that work, do they what are they and do they apply to individuals as well?
4: They absolutely do. One of the things that companies do, as well as individuals do, is we outgrow something. But conditions change, and we keep on doing the same thing. I sometimes tell my clients, "Do you have?" I'll say, do you have kids? They'll say yes. Have your kids ever outgrown anything that you've bought them? And they laugh. So that size 2 t-shirt protects, keeps warm a size 2 child. But if you put that size 2 t-shirt on a size 5 child, it will restrict and cripple that child. The same thing happens with companies. The same thing happens with people. So periodically, it's important to say, what is it that still serves me? Does this belief still serve me? In a company, it may be does this structure or this process or sometimes even these employees, do they still serve where we are now? Or is it time to say we've outgrown that? It doesn't mean that any of what we did in the past was bad. It just means it doesn't fit anymore, just like the child in the shark.
2: Right. That is, that is such a great example. How do, we, how do we get to that point? Because I think uh, some companies and, and some individuals, too, may not recognize that point where they've outgrown this area of their lives and that they need to make a change. So how do we, how do we begin to recognize that we do need to make that change?
4: Well, one of the things I do in, in the book and certainly in the process with people is I have people do a, a retrospective and to think about what things were easy, fun, good for them at, throughout their life. And then what were the things that were hard or difficult or unpleasant? And from that and the explorations that are in the book, and by the way, we have those explorations that people can download uh, from our website. Uh, So it's easier to do. We identify characteristics. There are themes. We have been who we've been in so many ways for so long. And once we can detect those themes, then, uh, so for example, there was a man I worked with uh, years ago. He was, had been very successful. He was a very smart engineer and plant manager, plant engineer. And yet when he was promoted to the management team, he couldn't get along with anybody. And so as we talked, he said, you know, I'm smart, and I hate to ask for help. I think that's a sign of weakness. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about when you were growing up. He said, well, my dad left us, my mom and six kids, when I was still in grammar school. And the only way I succeeded was by never depending on anybody. I just had to put my shoulder to the wheel and keep going. So once I heard that, then he and I were able to say, how does that show up now? Well, it worked great. It kept him safe. it made him successful. But being completely independent if you 're on a team doesn 't work anymore. So one of the things we talked about and one of the things that readers in the book can learn how to do is is expand their repertoire of responses um, and When I think of repertoire, I think about the clothes in your closet. Do you wear a winter coat in the summer or a bathing suit in the winter? No, you have many choices depending on what the circumstances are and this uh, young man that i worked with realized that he could be independent but he didn't always have to be independent so we when we get stuck in the always and never that's a clue that gosh is this still working for me or not or is it time to is it time to consider Expanding my wardrobe, if you will, of, of ways of acting,
2: yeah, so where is the? what's a good place to start? Where should a person start on this road to achievement?
4: Well, of course, I would tell you they need to buy the book <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a great answer but, uh,
4: I begin with uh after the retrospective, I really look at uh your lifeline and your turning points and high points and low points. The simplest short place is to write down all of the things that you do and say which are those things that are really energizing to me. We all have things that even if we're working hard at them, we're stimulated, we're excited about them. So when I'm leading a planning a retreat at the end of two days, are my feet tired? Yeah, they're tired, but I'm still energized because I love doing that. When I sit down and write that's energizing to me. When I work one-on-one with a client, that's energizing to me, but if you said to me, okay, we have this new software and we want you to install it, we want you to go through and look at what's working and what's not working, and then we want you to teach three people how it works, Jeff, I want to throw myself on the floor and cry. <laughs> Don't make me deal with that. So. Everybody has those things that are energizing for them, and everybody has those things that are depleting for them. So once you sort those through, then that's a place to start because you want to look at those things that are energizing for you. And then I also have them identify where their deep talents are, and we do that by looking what you know about what I call the know-hows, the know the know how's of the processes you know about and the know what's of the contents you know about. So you may know a lot about uh, you know a lot about uh being on the radio but you also know how to engage people in a conversation, ask them questions. You could take that skill into many and that talent really into many different fields. I think too many people limit what they think they can do and we have far more choices. That was one of the things that inspired me to write Live Large, I could see people limiting what they believed they could do when they had more skills and more talents than they ever imagined they had.
2: Well, I'm really enjoying speaking with you, and uh, let's do this, though. Let's take a break, Elizabeth, and when we come back, I want to continue the conversation and uh, dive a little deeper into some of these principles that you teach in in your new book, and uh, we'll we'll do that. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Her name is Elizabeth B. Crook, and uh, she's talking to us about the Achievers Guide to What's Next, her new book. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We're speaking with Elizabeth B. Crook, author of the critically acclaimed Live Large, An Achiever's Guide to What's Next. And uh, Elizabeth is the CEO of Orchard Advisors, And uh, for over 20 years, she's helped CEOs and entrepreneurs think and act strategically to grow their company's bottom line and have more satisfaction. And she's also been talking to us how we can apply the principles in this book in our own personal lives. Elizabeth, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeff. So I'm just curious, what, what kind of experiences have you had in your life that have helped you learn some of these principles of success?
4: Well, you know, sometimes I say that we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. I find that's true for individuals as well as for companies. Uh, One of the things, one of the reasons that we fail to learn can be that we're so ashamed of our failures that we never stop to say, what did I learn, what did I come to realize about this? What were the factors that led me to fail? Uh, or led me to have a less than optimum outcome we can also learn from our successes but again it takes asking that question what were the factors that led me to be successful in this situation the more we're able to ask those questions the more we're able to say oh we can yeah now i get it you remember the old v8 uh, juice commercial where the guy slaps himself on the head and says, Oh, I could have had a V eight. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it's, life can be sort of like that. You slap your head on slap yourself on the head and say, Oh, I could have asked for help Yeah. Instead of struggling along by myself trying to do it all myself. I could have actually asked for help. That's an example.
2: Yeah. So I want to get into some of the examples you use in the book. You mentioned finding values. Why is it important for an individual to find their values when on the road to success?
4: Our values, we have them, whether we have ever written them down or not. And I say this to companies as well as individuals. There are ways that we behave that are very much aligned with how we feel and what we believe the reason i think it's important for us to discern what our values are when we come to those points in life when we say gosh should i do this or maybe i shouldn't do that our values give us a guide there is a very successful uh, person that i've worked with for a number of years who has been actually struggling with some issues in his personal life And he has been saying, Well, I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if that's fair. And I said, Well, let's look at what your values say. And frankly, he's been dating three women at once, is actually the issue. (laughs) And he's wondering if one got mad at him. I mean, I can certainly understand that as a woman to find out that somebody I was dating seriously was seeing three other women at the same time. And. She got mad at him and he said I could never put up with somebody who would get mad or look on my cell phone uh, to check my my text and see that I was talking to other people. And I said, well, let's go back and let's look at your values. And so when he looked at his values, one of them was being, uh, being, uh, being responsible and being a person of an integrity. And so I said, help me understand how you're going out with three different people, each one believing that they were, had an exclusive relationship with you. How does that fit with your value of integrity? I'm confused.
1: Right, yeah. He
4: said, well, uh, uh, I guess that really doesn't fit, does it? And I said, what do you think? And he said, no, it really doesn't. So I didn't have to say, hey, listen, this is a bad idea. All I had to do was say, let's look at your values, who you are, how you are behaving and how you're being when you're being your very best self. Yeah. Do you- So when we have those values, we will, in effect, take a financial hit to honor those values. I have a client uh, who shortly after we started working and they had agreed to a, a year-long contract, got back to me and said, we have a company. We have to put this in abeyance. We've had a major shift in our business. Now, could I have held them to the contract? Yes. But the point was that one of my values is fairness and delivering value to my clients. So I said, let's suspend it and let's stay in touch to see when it would suit you for us to come back together. But will I chase him for the money? Absolutely not, because that's not one of my values. I will try and be helpful while they move through this period of difficulty.
2: Okay, that that's a great example of 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 you being uh, consistent with your values and practices and you gave an example of somebody that maybe uh you know their their values were not in sync with what they were actually doing and saying. Do you find that's uh common in the people that you work with where when they really uh, are honest with themselves, their values are not in line with their practices?
4: I think what happens is they forget. I don't think it is an intentional, malicious thing, but I believe that having those values to be reminded of. So one of the values in my company is there are no elephants in the room. We have the hard conversations, and st- but stay connected. There was a situation, in fact, now many of my clients laugh, they say you're the one who tells us the hard truth but you tell us in a way that we can hear it. There was a a situation some years ago and I had a man who was doing some contract work for us and we had disagreed about how a situation should be handled and, uh, you know, not every consultant is right for every client. And so I had intervened, not intervened, I had accompanied him uh, in a program that he was doing for a client, even though he really didn't want me to come. And at the end of the day, when we were debriefing the event, he was furious. I could see the steam practically coming out of his ears. And I said, what is the matter? He said, well, I didn't want you to be there. And I said, I had spoken with the client another person at the clients, and they said, no, we would expect you to be there. And he said, well, I overheard the president of the company saying that he wasn't sure about you. And I said, why didn't you tell me that? He said, well, I just didn't didn't know how to tell you, and I thought it might hurt your feelings. And I said, what is our number one value? And he said, no elephants in the room. We tell the truth, but we stay connected. And I said, you didn't honor that value now it wasn't an ending in that moment but we did part company because i knew that that was somebody with whom who didn't share the values of our company and so he couldn't be part of our team is he a bad person absolutely not have i supported him to go on and be successful in other places absolutely yes But he couldn't be part of this team because the ability to have the hard conversations about what's really going on is a core part of my belief. It's how I work with my clients. It's how I work with my staff. I believe that when you tell people what you see, what you observe, in a way that they can hear it, not as an attack, but this is what I see, help me understand what that is, then it opens up all kinds of possibilities. So that was a hard decision for me.
2: Yeah, interesting. Uh, You know, in your book, you also talk about uh, the bullseye target. What can you tell us more about the bullseye target?
4: Well, whether it's in business or life, as they say, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. (laughs) And uh, I call it the bullseye because the the target is what you're aiming for. And in the book, what we do is we... We ask, we invite people to think about all the different roles they play. It may be as a business owner, it may be as a as a family member or a community leader, or uh, some people will say, "I'm a physical being, a spiritual being, an emotional being." Uh, some people have, you know, big hobbies. They may be a a marathoner or an artist or a photographer that represents important parts of of their identity. So when we look at the different roles that we play. And then we think, for each role, what do I want to be related to this role? Do I want to be you know, loved and adored and respected? Uh, what are the things that we want to have? I want to have my own website, or I want to have a vacation home for my family, or I want to have a uh, uh, you know a, a trip to Europe. Uh, and then we say, what do you want to accomplish? I want to learn a new language or write a book or I want, as a business owner, I want to make X amount of money. And then what is the impact or the legacy? Some older you know, people, when they get into their 50s or 60s, and I have clients that old who say, yeah, I want to think about what the legacy is or the impact I want to make. What's the impact you want to make uh in your family or with your employees do you want to be able to sell your business do you want to be able to to have a, a community program that you started do you want to shift some attitude and the more we can think about where we'd like to be in three to five years or even longer then we can aim we can steer in that direction one of the big things that um that I really I think is an important part of my work, both with clients uh, both with individuals and companies, is to say, what are our criteria for success? How do we judge when we have gotten where we are, and how do we filter because every individual in the world has five hundred thousand things that they could do, or as we say here in the South that they might could do and uh, <laughs> it's important to know what are the what are the handful of things? that are most important so we can really focus on those.
2: Elizabeth, as we wrap up the interview here, what is the one thing that that people can do today to get a to get that spark started in their lives, to get them in the right direction on that path toward achievement?
4: I think the I think the one thing they can do is to sit down and say Well, I'm thinking. It's different for different people. But I think I think the one thing they can do is to identify what is something that I care about, write it down, and then write what is one thing I can do in the next uh, two days that will lead me closer to that. Because one of the things that I do in the book is – Help people get to action. There are lots of things that will tell you, think this, do that, believe this. But if you can't take those ideas into action, none of it will matter. So if you set set one goal and then what are you going to do in the next week that are, that's going to take you closer to that goal?
2: That's great, yeah. Instead of just thinking big right off the bat and, you know, not to... Uh... Not accomplishing anything, just setting those smaller attainable goals right now that that can get us headed in the right direction. Well, Elizabeth, we we really appreciate your time on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. The name of the book is Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next. Her name is Elizabeth B. Crook, who is the CEO of Orchard Advisors and and, – we wish you all the, the best of luck on your new book. It's out today, so look for that book and uh, get on that path toward achievement today by making those small goals, writing them down, and and following through. We'll take a break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished uh, speaking with a wonderful author of a new book called Live Large, The Achiever's Guide to What's Next. It was Elizabeth B. Crook. Go check it out. It's on sale today. And uh, now we're going to do some empty news. Not empty as in substance, but M-T news. And uh, this one is something that you'd probably see on an episode of C.O.P.S., A Pasco County, Florida Sheriff's Office sergeant who thought he'd stumbled across the scene of an accident Tuesday afternoon soon learned his initial assessment didn't quite hit the mark. According to the sheriff's office, Sergeant M. Rosenblum spotted several vehicles stopped on the side of the road. Believing he'd found a possible crash scene, Rosenblum began to notify dispatch about the situation when one of the vehicles pulled over on the side of the road uh, started to move. Rosenblum's body-worn camera captured the action as a brown Chevrolet pickup truck backed up around the stopped vehicles. That's when authorities say things started to get weird. The driver stared at Sergeant Rosenblum before he rapidly accelerated in reverse, intentionally striking the front of Sergeant Rose- Rosenblum's vehicle. The sheriff's office spokesman uh, explained. After smashing into the cruiser, the pickup's driver jumped out. Let the vehicle roll away on its own and proceeded to dance in the middle of the road, the video showed. The man was wearing nothing but boxer shorts, the sheriff's office noted. When Rosenblum tried to make heads or tails out of the situation, the scantily clad man strolled away, the video showed. Rosenblum, however, tried to calm the man down and bring him into custody. The man, the email said and video showed, didn't comply right away. At one point, the male charged at Sergeant Sergeant Rosenblum, who then deployed his taser and incapacitated him. With the help of one of the bystanders, the man was handcuffed. And, uh, yeah, like I said, something that you'd probably hear on Cops. (laughs) I'm guessing there may have been some substance abuse issues there.
3: Did not say in the story. Just a guess. Just assume, I'll go by what's reported only.
2: <laughs> no assumptions. No assumptions. Okay. Anything else we, we should uh, talk about, Terry?
3: Um, this story I found, uh, it was actually a week ago, but uh, it's interesting. An apparent ambush of ISIS militants is making headlines, if only because those that overpowered them were actually wild boar. Ooh. A tribal leader in northern Iraq tells the Times of London the animals killed three members of the Islamic State and injured five others Sunday. His best guess is that the militants were preparing to launch an ambush of their own near a Kurdish checkpoint. Uh, the area is dense with reeds, which makes it good for hiding in. But, you know, for so they were hiding in the tall weeds, the militants, and so were the boar. And so the boar attacked. <laughs> So, they, 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 uh, some refugees that were fleeing the area spotted the bodies. Um, some Curtis intelligence officials were, were talking about it, and uh, they said ISIS responded by killing as many wild boar in the area as they could.
2: <laughs> this sounds like another show you'd see on Fox: "When Good Boars Go Bad."
3: When bur- yeah, yeah. I mean, you <laughs> when see boars the- attack, I don't know. It's uh, there's different stories like that that come out. We talked about. Um, some dental hygiene. Yes. Before about how to brush your teeth and stuff. But some good news is some technology is coming out that could eliminate root canals. Ooh. Have you had a root yes. canal before? No. Cole? Root canal?
2: No, sir. I had a root beer once.
3: I think my mother and my father put my dentist's kids through college because <laughs> they had so many root canals. It's like. Yeah. I'm in high school and college. You get a note, hey, uh, at the dentist, getting a root canal. Wow. Seriously, how many many roots do you have left?
2: Yeah, usually it's like gone fishing but gone root canaling.
3: So they're saying uh, uh, researchers at the Weiss Institute at Harvard University. I'm saying it wrong, but, you know, what are you going to (laughs) do? University of Nottingham. So Harvard and Nottingham. They are looking at it. So they decided to end the war on cavities and create a biomaterial that not only repairs teeth but regenerates the the uh, dentin that gets destroyed with tooth decay. Dentin's mm. a part of your tooth. This could be the end of replacement fillings and root canals as we know it. So when you go in and get a tooth fixed, the material dentist used to fill a tooth, it could be metal or a composite base, it damages the tooth by doing that. It also breaks down over time and you wind up having to go back and get that filling replaced 10 to 15 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Sometime the tooth needs to have a, a root canal, a deeper filling done, or worse, an extraction and an implant to, br- or a bridge to put in. So all the different, you know, dental dental surgery-type methods they have is all because our teeth just decay over time, so they continually have to update them. So no matter how much you brush, floss, or take take care of your teeth, having an old-school or current filling is just going to damage your tooth somewhere down the line. This new synthetic biomaterial works in conjunction with the pulp tissue that is already inside the tooth. It stimulates the stem cells it comes in contact with, and the process of healing and regeneration begins. It's kind of like getting a, a... a new doctor but with less time uh, – it says a new, uh, a new Doctor Who but with less time travel involved. am not sure what the reference to that is. <laughs> I realize it's Doctor Who but yeah. Yeah, whatever. So in other words, it's like – It it's, was it's,
2: science mumbo-jumbo. They're, <laughs> they're trying to
3: give you uh, a better way, a biomaterial that won't decay your tooth but still give you the same effect as a filling, hopefully avoiding a root canal down the road.
2: Mm, I wonder if dentists are going to like this. Or if they'll just charge you they'll probably extra just for charge this. you more yeah. to make up the difference. <laughs> so. Or if only four out of five dentists will like yeah, it. Yes. So. <laughs> That's normally the statistic. Ah. Uh, and by the way, four out of five dentists approve of that joke that you just made, Cole. The other one has no sense of humor. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show where we continue to celebrate National Teacher Day. We'll be right back.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at
0: 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU
1: Radio.
2: Good Monday morning, everyone. It is Monday, May 8th here on the Matt Townsend Show and pretty much everywhere else for that matter. But uh, something that we... That is unique to this show today is that we are celebrating Dr. Matt Townsend's birthday and uh, we're celebrating it without him because he is not feeling well. So he's probably got his feet kicked up somewhere laying down and celebrating as well as his birthday. He's also celebrating No Socks Day. So uh, as long as there's nobody else around, feel free to celebrate No Socks Day just in case there's an odor issue but that wouldn't that wouldn't apply to you i'm sure anyway good morning we're having a great time here we just finished speaking with joe cannon our washington insider and later on this hour we're going to be speaking with lisa ferentz who is the author of the book Finding Your Ruby Slippers, uh, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. And I'm looking at the book right now, and it's got a, a cute pair of ruby sneakers on it with a <laughs> on a yellow brick road. So be sure to check that out, uh, especially after we speak with our guest uh, Lisa Ferenc, later on, on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll also be talking about a parent who I'm sure felt like a horrible parent or at least was panicked by something that happened to her toddler and her car. So how's that for a tease? Uh also a mix up at a funeral home and this one I really I really feel sorry for the family and also for the funeral home because it well, I don't know. I don't know if it's the type of mix up that is typical or that is understandable, but hopefully uh <laughs> Hopefully, uh, there could be some forgiveness there. Anyway, just a couple of teases to get your creative juices flowing and thinking ahead of what's up on the show. But uh, first and foremost, we want to turn things over to Terry South who's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's going on?
3: Nearly 400 migratory birds of brilliant plumage, as the article says, were killed when they smashed into a, a tower office building in Texas while flying in a storm. This happened on Friday. Office workers arrived at the tallest skyscraper in downtown Galveston on Thursday morning, found the birds with feathers of blue, green, yellow, and other hues dead on the ground. The picture, just a big pile of birds that all hit in the same place and fell to the ground. Uh, So it says the birds were coming from Central and South America and arrived in the coastal city of Galveston, likely fatigued from their flight over the Gulf of Mexico. The birds migrate to several areas across North America during the warmer months of the year. More than 20 species were represented among the 395 birds that died. The biggest group were Nashville warblers, followed by blackberry warblers. Okay, admit it. If you came to work and you just
2: saw a pile of dead birds. Yeah. You would start freaking out thinking that the zombie apocalypse was something, about to start. Something.
3: That's a sign, right? Ugh. Other than maybe it happens. But it's yeah. just sort of an odd <laughs> situation. A bunch of birds. Maybe the windows there.
2: were a little too clean.
3: Over the weekend, Olympian distance runner Yulid Chipoge. Chipchoge. Chip- yeah, Chipchoge. One of those is right, I'm Of sure. Kenya. Yeah. Uh, came just shy of running a sub-two-hour marathon. Nearly accomplishing one of the most anticipated feats in sports. The runner completed the 26.2-mile race in just two hours and 25 seconds. Is that good? No one has ever ran a sub-two-hour marathon, ever.
2: See, I don't know, because the only marathon I've ever, you know, tried to do is like a, a Netflix marathon.
3: Right. His time isn't eligible to set a new world record because he had a pace car, but it shaves more than two minutes off the current world record of two hours, two minutes, and 57 seconds. Hmm. So when you're dealing with distance running and you I mean, that's a lot of time to cut off uh, the best time. So his previous best was two hours, three minutes. So they uh, picked a guy. He's part of Nike's Breaking 2 project, which has developed high-tech shoes and an innovative pacing formation. The no word off, if it's it like the flying V or something. It's just some sort mm. of formation he runs to cut down on, on minimize wind resistance. So hopefully he's
2: going to get an endorsement deal out of this. Well, he does. He's on the team. Oh, like okay. He, to gotcha.
3: successfully break two hours, a runner must maintain a pace of four minutes, 34 seconds per mile, which is insane.
2: So at what point do you just say, you know what, I'm good with the current record that I have?
3: Like, at what no, point do you stop you pushing. pushing yourself? You just keep going. Wow. Every marathon runner looks extremely healthy to me. Yeah? And when they cross that line and you see them just kind of fall to the ground and can't, like, talk. There was a marathon um, <laughs> in uh, – I, I went and interviewed marathon runners after they finished a the marathon. And I, we were doing, like, live radio coverage. Think about that. Radio coverage – Of a marathon. Wow. Boring.
2: Bunch of breathing.
3: You run over and you try to interview somebody and they're just, they can't breathe. They can't think. And you're trying to say, hey, how was that? They just, they have nothing to say at that moment. So you try to come back later.
2: They're so fit because they're so obsessed with running that they don't have time to eat.
3: Apparently, well, they eat quite a bit. They just burn it it all running. Yeah. Uh, Moving on. Have you ever wanted to feel the force of an explosion, the sting of a pirate sword, or as this says, an elf's gentle caress. No, no, and probably. If you're already spending a lot of time in virtual reality goggles, you'll love Hardsight's VR suit. Costs five hundred forty-nine dollars. Has sixteen haptic feedback zones that ha- that send direct vibrations to individual muscle groups. So it's an entire suit head-to-toe for virtual reality.
2: So you're telling me I only have to pay $550 yeah. to know what it feels like to be
3: stabbed? Right. It says mm. due to sh- it'll ship in September. The suit connects to your VR goggles and a, a, a personal computer though it isn't the first haptic suit it's an advance it's a it's it says here it's cool to know that soon we'll be able to encase in what looks like a dirt bike dirt bike armor as we flail around our living rooms dodging you know you know airplanes and drone fire and monsters and that kind of stuff wow
2: would you pay 550 for that no no yeah
3: mainly because my wife wouldn't (laughs) now if my wife wasn't part of the situation probably absolutely oh mrs south yeah come on let me have some fun (laughs) <laughs> and finally, for Romans, the daily commute will never be the same again. This, uh, on Friday, they unveiled a brand new underground station, so a subway, that boasts a trove of archaeological treasures that were found during its construction. The range They range from iron spearheads to gold coins decorated with emperor's heads to delicate perfume bottles made from turquoise glass and also marble statues. There's a giant uh, bronze, bronze fish hooks from an, an ancient Roman fishing farm. So in other words, they're digging... This subway out, and as they're doing it, they start running into all this Roman artifacts and treasures wow. throughout all the history, right? They dug down uh, deep enough that uh, they, they got to the, I guess, time where no one was actually li- living where Rome is today. Yeah. Right? So, they in this dig, they're looking all through Roman history through the ground. And that so, archaeologists are in there just looking at all this stuff. They're pulling, they pulled 40,000 artifacts out of the ground.
2: Oh, my goodness.
3: And so, as they built the subway, They built it with this theme. The lowest part of the subway is the beginning of the Roman Empire. Oh, cool. All the way back. And so as you come up to the surface, as you're walking through on the walls and – They just have pictures
2: of John Stamos. They could.
3: (laughs) But, I mean, they have all the the history on the wall and stories. They have all the artifacts and display cases. And so it's like you're, you're in a subway, but it's a museum they created of Roman history.
2: Yeah. Oh, my goodness.
3: So, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So from the the bottom portion all the way to the top, you walk through all all aspects of Roman history throughout time. Wow. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Whereas I, I kind of have the feeling here, if we dug a subway, we just sort of just plow through everything and complain if we had to stop.
2: Yep. Dinosaur bone. Get it out of the way. Uh, give it to the dog. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. So Terry, I'm curious to know if anything like this has ever happened to you. Have you ever? Left your kid anywhere or done something that may have put him in temporary danger? Not yet. Okay. It's coming. But Don't he's worry. Only,
3: he's only six. So yeah.
2: No problem. So I love this. Uh, well, I love it because it had a happy ending. So there were some tense moments for a mother in the United Kingdom after her toddler locked himself in her car. <sighs> But for the 14-month-old, it was nothing but a good time. Christy Green was loading groceries into her car when her son Brandon locked himself in the car. Green posted a picture to her Facebook page that showed Brandon standing in the driver's seat with a huge smile on his face. Thank you to the amazing guys who rescued my cheeky monkey, which I think is what we call Matt on the show here, Mm. after locking himself in the car today, she wrote. He was clearly traumatized by the whole ordeal. Brandon was freed when firefighters smashed the rear window of the car. See, now that's scary because, you know, you always hear about kids being left in the car or animals being left in the car and, you know, it gets a little too hot in there and they they pass away or they –
3: yeah, they die. Yeah. I did go to – Now, in this case, what happened when the mom was loading groceries in the back of the car, she set her keys down inside the – it was a hatchback, right? So she set the keys down, loading the groceries in, and then she turns around and closes the door, forgets that the keys are in there. Right. And her boy runs over and locks the door because he's having fun. Yeah. And it was fine, and the picture's great. He's up there grabbing the steering wheel. He's smiling. The firefighters are playing with him as they're trying to get the door open. Then he reaches down into the coin cup and grabs a penny and tosses it in his oh, mouth. Oh, no. They decide, okay, that's when they bust the window and stop trying to just open the door.
2: Hopefully he didn't turn on the cigarette lighter. No. I even, do they even have
3: cigarette lighters anymore? Most cars anymore? don't anymore. They just have, they, it's now just a power... Yeah, basically. So, but yeah, so when the kid swallowed a button or a penny or something, that's when they busted the window and got him out.
2: It's not like you can reason with a 14 month old. Come on, unlock the door. You can do it. He
3: thought you're having fun.
2: So one time when we were looking at a place to rent, we uh, were in the upstairs section of the house and my daughter, who must have been, gosh, she must have been two years old at the time. She went into one of the bedrooms, closed the door and locked it. Mm. And so she was in there for an hour, and all we could do during the hour was, as they were trying to find the keys to unlock that door, we were slipping our credit cards under the door so that it was kind of a game, you know, that she would pull them. And, you know, we were slipping pieces of gum under the door, just anything that she would want to pull and think it was a fun, good time. We ended up having to borrow a ladder from the neighbor and luckily the the window from the outside was open and we were able to get her out that way but that was pretty scary as well luckily it wasn't in a heated car (laughs) just wait if it hasn't happened to you something like that will happen I'm sure but uh, yeah I'm glad I had a happy ending there here's another weird one a mix-up at a funeral home Have you ever heard of something like this yeah "'Mourners arrived at a Flint, Michigan, funeral home to pay their respects "'and found a stranger in the casket. "'I told them that ain't our mama,' said Maurice Dunn. "'Dunn said he had to put his mother Alice Dunn to rest last week, "'but when the family showed up to the funeral home to say their goodbyes, "'they were stunned. "'It was a total stranger dressed in the clothing that my brother Joey picked out "'and the wig selected for our mother,' Dunn said. "'The wrong person was put into their mother's casket.' Dunn said once he alerted employees at Swanson Funeral Home, there had been a mix-up. He said the employees denied it. No, that's your mom. Oh, it is. (laughs) The funeral staff insisted that it was our mother and that a name band is the reason why he knew it was our mother, Dunn said. Dunn's brother said the funeral home eventually brought out their mother. It was very unprofessional, they said. You know, this reminds me of something that happened. Uh, We invited... A couple of young men over to our house, and we had a picture of where we were married, the building where we were married. And one of these young men said, oh, I know that. That's in Manti, Utah. And actually, we said, no, actually, uh, we were married in Logan, Utah. And he's like, no, that's Manti. Manti. Hmm. And my wife said, "Well, uh, it was
3: it was our wedding day." Is it a picture and... of you standing in front of said building? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think you know was, where that was. It's our wedding day. It, it We're be, in the picture. It would be different if it was just a picture of the building. <laughs> and this, right. Then you can okay, yeah. we'll have a discussion. But you're standing in front of the building. This kid yeah. did
2: not believe us. That's great. No, that's Manti. Yeah, that's great. All right, <laughs> we'll go with
3: that. Sure. Yeah, the, this story of the funeral home. The fact that they it, we've had several stories where the wrong bodies in there, and then they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, and then, you know, just a mistake, and I mean, just the idea of just making that mistake on that kind of a day in that yeah. moment is kind of horrible for the family, but when the employees start saying, no, that's your mom, and you're like, I know who my <laughs> mom is, that's not my mom, no, seriously, and they, the reason was because the tag on the toe yeah, had like well, a barcode, tag a and they scanned it, and it showed up as this other woman, as the correct woman, even though it was the wrong, they made a mistake somewhere along the road, but someone... Just sat there denying the fact that there was a mistake.
2: See, if you ever wondered why in hospitals they there are so many checks on the tag, like they oh, yeah. scan that thing like crazy. This oh. is why. Oh my goodness!
3: They scan mine when I was in with both of my kids. They would scan the the you know the wristband on me. They scan my wife. They scan the kid. They make sure everything's okay. They question every person that walks in the room.
2: I would have loved to have been there for That's that great. conversation. How well do you really know your mother?
3: Are you sure? I think people change. Do you really you know? Kind
2: of oh my goodness the nerve the noive well hopefully something like that never happens to you we'll take a quick break when we come back we're going to be speaking with our guest lisa Ferenc, the author of finding your ruby slippers transformative life lessons from the therapist couch i'm interested to hear uh interested in hearing what she has to say when we return this is the matt townsend show Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is away sick today and uh, I think for the next couple of days, too. You know, your thoughts have profound effect on many aspects of your well-being. An individual's behavioral choices, their self-confidence, feelings of self-worth and self-esteem all can be affected because thoughts can have a negative and lasting impact. Well, our guest, Lisa Ference, is a clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and a clinical consultant to practitioners and mental health. And she's here to explain how our mental and physical health are impacted by our thoughts and the importance of thinking positive. Lisa, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Thank
0: you, Jeff. Good morning. Nice to be with you.
2: Great to have you. And, you know, I'm, I saw the book... Uh, with a pair of ruby sneakers on it on a yellow brick road. And I'm, I'm curious to know how you came up with that image and, and what was the idea behind this book?
0: Sure. So the book is called Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist's Couch. And, uh, you know, the inspiration really is The Wizard of Oz, how Dorothy spends the whole movie trying to find her way back home. And she believes that the wizard has the answers. And then, of course, when she gets to the Emerald City, she discovers that the wizard is just a short guy behind a curtain and he doesn't have any power. But then there's this beautiful moment where the good witch comes back and basically says to Dorothy, look at your own feet. You've been wearing the ruby slippers all along. And so I love that metaphor as a therapist because it's an opportunity to remind people about their own inner wisdom and as we you and I are going to talk about today the words the thoughts that we carry in our head that monologue that we hold in our head really does profoundly influence our mood our behavioral choices all the things that that you alluded to we put Ruby sneakers on the cover um, because we wanted this to resonate for men as much as for women and for teenagers as much as for adults. So this book really is for anyone and everyone who wants to tap into that inner wisdom, their resiliency, their strength, and learn some more positive, hopeful ways to think about themselves and to think about the world.
2: Okay, so I know you're going to talk about this in here in just a minute, but just overall, how how is it that our thoughts can have an impact on our overall health?
0: So, excuse me, I want to I want to give you a a couple of quotes that I think really kind of emphasize this. And the, the first is from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, we are what we think about all day long. And the second is from William James, who said, the greatest weapon against stress is our ability to choose one thought over another. So the way that we think throughout the day has subtle and not so subtle effects on our mood on what we literally feel in our body, whether it's tension and stress or it's comfort and relaxation. People don't realize it, but, you know, when you walk around with particular thoughts in your head throughout the day, it impacts your posture, it impacts whether or not you're making eye contact with other people, and that's certainly then going to play out in terms of the way people begin to interact with and relate to you. And uh, definitely impacts just our overall well-being. If we're walking around with thoughts that are negative or self-effacing or destructive, we're going to be less likely to engage in self-care. So that will translate into our medical and our mental well-being as well.
2: Well, Lisa, I'm super excited that you're on the show with us, and we we love all the guests that we have here on the show. And you mentioned posture. We have one of our, our we call him our health evangelist. He's always talking about you know certain foods that we eat and our posture. And so every time he's here, he's you know he's been effective enough that we're always standing when he's in the room. <laughs> Very so good. I'm hoping you can help me out too because uh, yeah, I really when you think about it, all of our actions that we perform throughout the day whether good or bad are starting out as thoughts it's all starting from thoughts and you know as you mentioned our negative thoughts can have a significant impact as well as our positive thoughts but uh, in your book you you mention some of the the common negative thoughts that we have that can have an effect on our success what are those three common negative thoughts that we tend to have
0: Well, Jeff, I wish there were only three, (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) because there are lots and lots. But uh, I think there's a little bit of a kind of universality to some of this, you know, that a lot of us are, are prone to thoughts that are either perfectionistic or highly critical or judgmental or even shaming. And I, you know, my specialty is working with folks who come from a history of trauma, abuse, or neglect, and so for those folks, it's even more common that their thoughts are going to be shaming. So thoughts like, I'll never be good enough, or um, "you know, I, nobody is trustworthy, I'll never feel safe in the world, um, I made my bed, now I have to lie in it. That's actually a really common one that doesn't allow people to change their mind or to move beyond the choices that they made at an earlier time in their life. Um, another very common one is, If I'm afraid therefore I can't so I in the book I I work very hard to kind of shift that into be afraid and do it anyway because many people are kind of stopped in their tracks by a sense of fear or anxiety and although those are very normal things to feel they don't have to be roadblocks you know in our forward movement and progress in life so knowing that we can be afraid and still move ahead get the support that we need, sort of check out the circumstance, see if there's extra resources that we need to bring on board. And certainly in some situations when we do feel afraid, it's our body letting us know this is an unsafe situation and, you know, we shouldn't move forward with it. But we want to. We don't want to go to that sort of automatic assumption that just because I'm feeling fear or anxiety, you know, doesn't mean that I can't move ahead in my life. Um I think the other thing that people often think is that they have to put self-care on the back burner so that they can take care of others, and I believe very strongly that we're only as effective with other people in our lives as the extent to which we take care of ourselves personally, so I think that's really important. Um, I think another really common thought that people have is kind of assuming that what other people are dealing with or feeling is always going to be more important, um, and more traumatic than what they're dealing with. So I work very hard with my clients to discourage them from comparing their circumstances, their pain uh, to other people because you know all that matters is, is what we're feeling and, and what we're struggling with. And I guess one other very common one is that people tend to make decisions, and this is back to thoughts again, we make decisions either from what was in the past or the potential about what we think could be in the future rather than making decisions from what is. And so when we go to our thought process, it's important when we're making a big decision that we don't rely on how it used to be or how we think it could be, but but really do an honest, authentic assessment of, how is it? How is it for me now? And that could apply to a relationship, you know, somebody who's contemplating leaving a relationship that's not fulfilling. That can certainly apply to somebody who's contemplating leaving a job or a workplace environment because it doesn't feel supportive or validating. And again, most people tend to make decisions based on, well, it used to be good, or I'm hoping it could be good again, rather than really focusing on what is.
2: Yeah. You know, and as you were speaking, I was thinking of d- different examples of situations in which, you know, someone might feel fear and how if we can work through that fear, it actually turns into a positive experience. You know, I think of people that for me especially, I don't think I went on a, a really big roller coaster until I was 20 or so. I was always afraid to go on those, you know, or somebody uh. that... Uh, that feels afraid to compete in a sport, or, and I know you have an example of this that we can talk about in a second a fear of, a fear of public speaking. And yet, mm-hmm. once I started going on those roller coasters, I had a great time. And I think yeah. that fear actually led to and transformed into this feeling of joy and thrill that I wouldn't have had otherwise.
0: You're exactly right. And so, What what often we perceive to be a risk or a challenge can really in actuality be an opportunity. And I think you gave a really lovely example of that, that it's something that you were afraid of and that felt risky and, you know, felt, you know, maybe too challenging or overwhelming. You were actually able to access that inner courage and confront it, and then it became an opportunity for joy. So it's wonderful when we figure that out, that some of the stuff in life that really we have been afraid of or that has been depriving us of, you know, going out of our comfort zones and trying new things, because there is such a thing as healthy risk-taking, you know. There's certainly unhealthy risk-taking that we want to discourage people from doing, but healthy risk-taking, allowing ourselves to go outside of our comfort zone and, and push ourselves, you know, in, in small and safe ways can really enrich our lives quite, quite profoundly.
2: So give us another example or two of of this principle. And I know that uh, you mentioned a client that has a a fear of public speaking and how he almost let that fear impact his advancement at work. So tell us a little bit about that and and maybe another example.
0: Sure, sure. So uh, this is a lovely guy that I worked with for a period of time in therapy, and um, he was quite good at his job. He worked um, for a big computer company and was very, very bright, and very good at his job. And hit the higher ups saw very quickly that he had tremendous potential, and so they began to really encourage him to move up the ladder and to take, a, a, you know, a job with much more authority. And although a part of him really wanted to do that, he was very anxious about it and talked a lot about it in therapy because. He knew that a part of that job description would include a lot of public speaking. He would have to run all of the staff meetings, and sometimes there'd be a 100 people in the room, and he would have to give a lot of reports back to um, other members in the company. And he, this guy had what is really the number one social phobia, which is the fear of public speaking. And so he decided in his own head, again, going back to the thought process, well, because I am so... So desperately afraid of public speaking it 's kind of a no brainer I cannot get promoted. I cannot you know move up the ladder and and that 's kind of where he stayed and he was stuck and he was not happy because he was bored and he wasn 't really using his, his full potential but again, that fear about speaking in public really kind of hijacked him taking this healthy risk and enriching his life and moving moving forward in his life. And so in therapy we talked about how fear did not have to be a deal breaker. It could be something that we could work with and work through. And he did a couple of really cool things. He actually went to Toastmasters, which is a wonderful organization that gives people a very safe platform to practice public speaking and gives them some very concrete tools about how to, you know, sort of manage and navigate your nervousness and, um, you know, what makes a good speech and and that sort of thing. And so he began to do that and although he really was terrified, to his great, you know, great, he accessed that courage and to his great credit, he was able to stay with Toastmasters and really start to gain some fundamental skills. Um, we role-played in therapy as well, and I continue to give him resources to help soothe him and comfort him as he would experience the anxiety. Because the anxiety doesn't go away, right? That's not the goal. And the fear doesn't even go away. It's just learning how to work with it and not fight it and actually bring comfort to it. And that, that calmed him down. And that kind of brings us full circle, Jeff, because when he brought comfort to it, that was totally connected to self-talk again. Right. That was the way he would talk to himself in his head, kind of both normalizing the anxiety and the fear that he felt, but also giving himself a very positive pep talk and saying, I can do this. And what's the worst that happens? You know, so I stumble or I make a mistake. Uh, It's going to be okay. I can do this. I can do this. And again, it was those positive thoughts, I think, that really kind of carried him and buffered him and got him through the Toastmaster experiences, And he decided to take this promotion. And I don't want to totally sugarcoat it because for the first couple of months, it was a a genuine struggle for him. He was very apprehensive, very nervous, spent a lot of time in the bathroom before giving, you know, the, the staff reports. But over time, because he continued to deal with his fear in very compassionate ways rather than shaming himself, and that's a really key point because he could approach it with a lot of empathy and self-compassion, he really learned to navigate it. It calmed down pretty dramatically. And the wonderful sort of punchline to the story is that he actually went on to be a motivational speaker in his company. And now he trains all around the country, and he speaks in front of hundreds and hundreds of people and, and has tremendous ease doing that. So it was a wonderful example of somebody who, you know, was really being held back by fear and learned how to talk to himself in ways that were soothing and compassionate and positive and, you know, worked hard and practiced and got some resources and skills and really overcame that fear.
2: I love that. And, you know, it reminds me of uh, Jerry Seinfeld's joke about how, uh, the number one fear that or the number two no the number one fear that people have is public speaking and the number two fear that they have is death so that means if they're at a funeral they'd rather be in the in the casket in than the casket. giving the eulogy <laughs>
4: It's so true. Yeah. It's so true. (laughs) Well,
2: I really appreciate that example. Let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to continue this discussion with you and uh, maybe talk about some more examples where this uh, line of positive thinking will help us out. Her name is Lisa Ferentz, and she is a clinical social worker, and uh, her book is called Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Couch. And we'll continue this discussion when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. to The program. We're speaking with Lisa Ferentz, who is the author of the book Finding Your Ruby Slippers Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Couch. And uh, Lisa, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks, Jeff. So, uh, you know, earlier we we talked about the example of riding on a roller coaster and how some people, including, you know, me at one point, would not go on these roller coasters because we were afraid of them. You know, we, we didn't like the feeling that we got while riding them or afraid something might happen. But, uh, you know, that is something that really doesn't have much significance. If I decided I wasn't going to go on a roller coaster, it re- really wouldn't change my life in the grand scheme of things. But there are certain things that maybe we choose not to follow through with because of a fear that we have that really could have a lasting impact on our lives. And one example uh, is, uh, or a couple of examples, relationships and uh, our our jobs. So... What is it that we can do to get past that fear? Because obviously, like I said, these are things that affect, that have an impact on the the course of our lives.
0: Absolutely right. So if somebody is walking around with a negative thought that says, I made my bed, now I have to lie in it, as you can imagine, that can keep them stuck, you know, for years and years and years. In either an abusive or a neglectful or unfulfilling relationship, and it can certainly, you know, keep them in in a job that is not gratifying. Um, if people walk around with a thought that says this is good as it gets, that's something else. that kind of keeps us stuck, almost puts a glass ceiling in a way on the extent to which we can continue to evolve and self-actualize. So these are very powerful thoughts, and they do have very significant impact you know, for, for many people on uh, many different arenas of their lives. And I actually think the first step in the process is inviting people to start to notice the kinds of messages that are in their head. You know, what is that monologue? What's on that tape? I think it's something that we're so used to and it's been so normalized for us that the average person doesn't stop to really think about, what am I thinking about? You know, what are the... Three or four really dominant thoughts that often show up throughout the day in my life. Um, That's really sort of step one is just to increase awareness and to start to notice those thoughts. I always want to add the caveat of noticing without shaming or judging because that's sort of a nail in the coffin once you do that, that, that actually solidifies and strengthens the thought. So we want to be able to notice these thoughts and have have greater awareness about what's on that tape, what's on that monologue that I actually listen to throughout the day, whether I'm conscious of it or not. And I want to notice that in a very compassionate and gentle kind of way. And then I think step two is a willingness, and this is a part that definitely takes courage and sometimes it takes the support of a therapist, and that is a willingness to reevaluate those thoughts, because most of us, again, go through life with this tape playing, and I want to point out that many of the messages that we carry are messages that were given to us by people in our lives who we trusted and loved, and so we did not challenge or question the messages that we got, even if those messages were negative, like, you're not smart or you'll never amount to anything or, you know, don't bother trying or you don't deserve to be treated with respect. We don't challenge those messages because, again, they were given to us by people in our lives who were supposed to be trustworthy and were supposed to care about our well-being. And so it's not really until often much later in life that people do this, begin this process of sort of taking a second look at some of those thoughts and then I always encourage people to ask this very basic but critically important question, and that is, do these thoughts either hinder my self-esteem or enhance my self-esteem? And believe it or not, it's it's kind of as simple and profound as that, because if I'm carrying a thought that does nothing to help my sense of self-worth, that actually makes me feel bad about myself, that is a thought that's held me back in many arenas of my life, then I have to start... Be- to be curious about why would I continue to want to hold that thought why would I you know what am I getting from that what's the benefit and it can be a very powerful moment for somebody when they actually realize like fully fully feel the impact of that negative thought and realize that's done me no good you know and if anything that thought is part of why I have either been walking around with anxiety or depression or why it's very difficult for me to allow myself to trust people and get close to people and have satisfying relationships, or why I feel like I'm stuck in a dead-end job, or, or why I struggle as a parent, you know, being compassionate and available to my children. So it's noticing the thoughts without judgment. It's really finding the courage to begin to challenge and question, reevaluate the legitimacy of the thought um, and whether or not it's helpful or a hindrance to self worth and really, the bottom line is if we discover that what we 've been holding and thinking does not promote good self worth and empathy and compassion, then we want to begin to find the courage to let it go it no longer it does not serve a useful purpose in our lives
2: yeah. Lisa, I want to I want to throw a bit of a curveball here at you. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, in my own life, I I would feel better about myself if I could lose a few pounds. Let's just say well, I guess
0: you and everybody else.
2: You're know. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now I look in the mirror and I say, you know, I can picture myself being thinner. I could picture that, but then my thoughts beyond that really don't back up that image that I that potential image of myself. So it seems like in the field of you know body image and and being having good health and that sort of thing, how do we how do we stay consistent? When research um, and ideology and opinions in this field seem like they're constantly changing, when you have somebody saying – well this diet is good for you and then other people are saying actually this diet is not good for you you need you need to try this diet or you should be focusing on th- these exercises when somebody else is saying you should be focusing on on these exercises so i know that you mentioned that that we when we make a decision we need to follow through to the end but how, how do you deal with uh differences in in opinions and the how education changes throughout people telling us that now this is what you should be doing.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually work with, because again, as a trauma specialist, I work with many people who struggle with body image and are overweight. And I see, I think everything that you mentioned, all the different diets, the exercise, everything else, the, the problem with all of it is that it's only really addressing a fairly superficial thing, which is a number on the scale. And what I'm really interested in when I work with people who have body image issues or weight issues is to go underneath that, because I don't think it's about the food at the end of the day. Um, I think it's more about what is the extent to which you believe you deserve to be healthy and deserve to be treated with love and respect, and what's the extent to which that's been modeled for you, you know, again, growing up in your family of origin and in your present relationships. So I think for people who are grappling with issues around weight and body image, it's you got to dig deeper. It's not because there is no one diet, there is no magic bullet. You know, no matter what any research or article says. And um, I think what what I've watched in my career as a therapist, when I see people who can sustain whatever healthy behavior they choose to take on, it has really nothing to do with the healthy behavior. It has to do with that deeper thought that says I am worthy of this. I, I want this for myself because I love myself enough to want to be, you know, healthy, well, strong, whatever words speak to you. So I think for people who still don't really have a sense of genuine self-worth and and self-compassion, um, it resonates to hurt yourself. It resonates to do destructive behaviors. When you hold shame about something, it resonates to do destructive behavior. But when you... Truly love yourself, and I don't in any way mean this in a narcissistic sense. I mean this in a really healthy, authentic, um, very calm feeling of, I am worthy. Like, that's the bottom line. Like, no questions asked, no second guessing it, regardless of the things that have happened in my life or the things that have been done to me. I believe and accept and understand that fundamentally, I am a lovable, worthy, decent, good human being who deserves to be uh, treated with respect, and that includes um, me treating with my, myself with respect. And so if we instead, if we don't look at calories, but instead we start to look at the choices that people make around food and eating, and are those choices emblematic of respecting their body, or are those choices about not caring about the body? So I think you have to come at this from a deeper psychological and emotional place, um, because I don't think that any one diet or, or any particular type of exercise will enable a person to sustain taking care of themselves. That that comes from a very deep core place of self-love and, and worthiness. And I think that's where we have to go to. It's, a, it's, a, it's deeper work.
2: That is such good advice. Lisa, uh, in closing here, we What we like to do on the show is is have our guests share with us the one thing the one thing that that we can do today that can that can result in a positive change in our lives, and in this case it it would be with our thoughts. What can we do to yeah. to get our thoughts in the right place so that we can make that change?
0: You know, I think Brene Brown has done a lot of work in the field of of self compassion says talk to yourself like you would to someone you love." And so I think if we could invite your audience to, again, pause throughout the day, notice how they are talking to themselves, and then kind of rewind the tape and say that same thought again, but say it as if you were saying it to someone you love. And notice that typically there's a shift. It's... There's more tenderness and it's kinder and it's less judgmental. Um, The other strategy that I have my clients use a lot is if they can't come up with a, a, a gentler, kinder way to talk to themselves, I ask them to think about a resource in their life, somebody who they know really loves and cares about them. And then just, again, pause and Listen to the thought and then say, you know, let's say your grandma is a loving resource, right? To pause and say to yourself, how would my grandmother say that to me? So that's another way that you can begin to challenge that negative tape and begin to bring on board messages that are more nurturing and, and positive. And believe it or not, the best resource that you can actually use is if you have a pet. Because... Pets love us completely unconditionally, right? No matter what we do, that dog waits for you and can't wait to see you when you walk in at the end of the day, same with your cat. So to just ask yourself, how would my dog say that to me? How would my cat say that to me? I saw a wonderful sign once that said, be the person your dog thinks you are. So (laughs) if 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 we take in these resources and we just pause and we say, is there a way that I could say that thought? In, in, in a tone that's gentler or kinder, you know, how would I say it to somebody I love? How would somebody who loves me say it to me? Those are very concrete ways that people can begin to reshape their thought process from one that is judgmental and critical to one that is uh, kinder and more empathic. And boy, once you have that inner voice that can speak to you in ways that are loving and, and calm and non-judgmental. You can really manage everything that comes your way in life. I really believe
1: that. That's
2: huge. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us on the Matt Townsend Show today. Her name is Lisa Ference, and she is a clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, educator, and the founder of the Ference Institute. She presents workshops and keynote addresses nationally and internationally and is a clinical consultant to practitioners and mental health agencies. And the name of her book is Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Couch. I've got it right here in front of me. I think I'm going to confiscate it and uh, take it home for some reading and study on my own. Lisa, thanks again. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're celebrating Dr. Matt's birthday, but without him, unfortunately. And uh, hopefully Dr. Matt will be feeling better and will be back soon. But until then, uh, Terry, you've got a story or two you want to share There's, with there us. There
3: was a crisis at my home over the weekend. Um, sat Uh-oh. down to turn on the TV and uh, got the DVR on and notif- just notification popped up. It says, hard drive failure. <gasps> Oh no! So, I'm like, and then I, I start looking at the TV, and I'm acting as if maybe a child is, now, is talking is you know talking back, disrespecting the parents somehow, because <laughs> it's misbehaving, right? The yeah. DVR is supposed to work. Yeah. DVR said hard drive failure. So then you read along, you know, some steps, okay, unplug, reset, all that. So I did that. It didn't work.
2: And were you worried that everything that was on there was gone? Not yet. Okay.
3: But after I plugged it back in, it reset, and then I went and hit DVR, and it said everything, 218 programs erased. And so then I start having this emotional feeling, and because of this show, I stepped back from that moment and looked at, why am I having an emotional reaction (laughs) to my DVR failing? And the reason I put so much time and effort setting up the timers so all the shows that I want to watch will just record and I don't have to watch them live. I can watch them at my leisure and all the timers are gone. All the TV shows gone. Oh. And I was really angry. And it's like – I mean in my home, it's like the DVR is like a part of the family. Right? It's, <laughs> oh, no. I'm not sure if it's above or below the kids quite yet but it's right there. Yeah. And and it's like something bad. So I called the the you know satellite company and the uh, – had me reset it again. And everything was fine. Oh. All my shows came back. But I went through all these emotions about my DVR and so, about the, the effort and the time. And it's like you, 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 you're teaching the DVR to behave in a specific way. It's like, with, it's like you were you know, teaching a child oh, yeah. to behave specific, how you want the child mm-hmm. to behave. And then it was talking back to me. It wasn't functioning correctly. And I, I just I, – I had to look and see, is this normal? Do I have a problem? And I came to the realization that this is normal and I'm fine. I don't have to seek any sort of See, help or anything.
2: I'm laughing because I don't think what you're saying is terrible. It's because I think I'm on the same page as you.
3: Yeah, I was – and I stayed calm. I didn't like – usually when I vent, I'll like, you know, talk to my wife and like explain things like that. I just kept quiet. They kept, My family came down. We are going to watch a movie. I just stayed quiet and sat there on the phone and – waiting to talk with customer service and didn't say a word and then solved the problem, moved on, and then went through all this with my wife. And she laughed at me. She thought that I definitely have a problem.
2: (laughs) Well, maybe we should talk to Kim Giles about this when she's on the show here in just a bit. She will be our next guest when we return. And uh, go check your DVRs. Make sure that everything's uh, in order. And if something goes wrong, don't panic. Like Terry said, just take a deep breath. Remain calm, call your provider, everything will be okay. Even if everything gets deleted, because it isn't a human child, it's just a machine. Words of wisdom here on the Matt Townsend Show will return.